Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is what's known in these parts as an anime podcast. Um, and I'm your host, Neve. And I'm joined by my other co-host, who you just heard, Connor. Hey, everybody. Um, I was wondering if we were just going to do that bum 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 again. Um, anyway. Maybe next time. Yeah. So, today... We are covering episodes 24 through 33 of uh, Revolutionary Girl Utena, which is also known as the Otori Akio Saga. Um, one, like, bit of note here, which, if people have been watching along, um, like, may not then be super surprising. Um, so I know, like, if, if you're watching on the Blu-rays, the what they call the sagas is a little off, I think. Um, and I forget exactly where they do the, the breakdown line, but like, I think that they include, um, the final episode of the, the student council saga. They call that part of the black rose saga, which is that like clip show episode. And then I think they also put the, the, um, like an episode. I forget exactly. There's some place where like stuff gets shuffled around as well. Um, I think they also include the first episode of this as part of the Black Rose Saga. And then I know that they just call, like, everything after Black Rose Saga, um, the Apocalypse Saga. Which, again, is, like, it's how they divide it into the three Blu-rays, but it's a little bit different than, like, the way that, um, I often heard these, this episode breakdown occurring. Um, but I think you can also kind of to some degree, see why, because there's like a, a climactic moment that's going to happen at the end of all of this. Um, and, but I, I think it's a little bit less like clearly delineated when we then get to the final six episodes of the series in the way that like the rest of this has felt very clearly like, Oh no, we are just like in this arc right now. Um, right. Like the black rose yeah. saga feels so, um, contained. Con- yeah. Contained of like, this is its, its arc. Um, and you can like maybe shuffle these clip episodes around to like make it nice on a Blu-ray collection. But, um, yeah. Um, I just say that for, for a reason, which is that, um, I feel like in a lot of the other ones, we, we've sort of been able to get to like, Oh, here's sort of a, a final conclusion of like what exactly is happening here. And this is the one that I feels like we have like the most actual cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, as we did with last episode, um, we're once again going to do the thing where we just do, uh, I'm going to do like a synopsis of this arc overall, um, and then we're just going to do synopses of all of the episodes, and then we'll get into um, actual episode dis- like discussion stuff. Um, yeah. So make sure you set your playback for two times speed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> going into the synopses. <laughs> yeah, just start slamming that like skip. 30 seconds ahead uh if you just like really don't care about hearing or not especially because i didn't write many jokes into this these ones because um these are just not nearly as jokey of episodes uh things get really serious so overall the otori akio saga um at its heart this arc basically charts what i would describe as akio's grooming of utena um, and Anthony's involvement with both her brother and then also his, his plans to groom Utena. Um, although I will say up front here, we'll, we'll probably talk about this in more detail, but I want to be clear that like exactly how willing a, a participant Anthony is in the, um, 
like plotting and grooming that Akio is doing remains to be fully explored. Um, I don't know if you agree with that statement, Connor, but I, I would say at this yes. moment, um, the first time I watched it too, it's unclear exactly how much is Anthe like actually willingly doing this stuff or is she being controlled by her brother as well? Um, so, um, but basically, um, so that's the, the main arc. And then I kind of wanted to touch on like new motifs that we get through this episode. Um, a lot of this is around the dueling stuff, which is maybe unsurprising. Um, but first and foremost, the, the big motif that comes up here is Akio's um, bright red and very sexually coded sports car, um, which figures heavily throughout a lot of these scenes. So it'll, it'll kind of come up as I'm discussing some of the, the like recurring sequences. Um one of them is we will see scenes of a long-haired Akio driving with um, often Toga, not always, um, and then the other duelists and their rose brides. More on that soon. <laughs> um, but so we'll get this scene of like right before a duel happens, um, Toga usually will invite someone to ride with Akio, basically, um, and then we get the scene of them riding in this like weird street at night. Um, that uh, Toga describes as like what the the road that um, like Leads goes to the around. End of the world. Yeah. Um, re- yeah. That like something circles. Like that. Yeah, circles the end of the world or something. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, and then usually there's some sort of discussion. Um, oh, I, I wrote out some of the the sequence. So Toga says um this is me quickly jotting it down while the scene was happening so apologies if i got like slight wording wrong but um if your soul hasn't fully given up then you can hear the sound that races around the end of the world um and then you'll hear in the distance the throbbing and it very intentionally saying throbbing here of akio's sports car engine um and then togo will say follow us to the world you desire and at that point akio's car will flies open yeah, as his shirt flies open. Um, and then Akio crashes his car into the scene. Um, and then we get the actual shot of them riding on this like weird liminal road at night. Um, and usually they'll discuss like, what is that uh, duelist desires? And then ultimately Akio will reveal the end of the world to them, which involves them seeing that he has the rose signet on his hand. Um like the ring and then jumps from the driver's seat to the of his speeding car where his shirt flies open and he poses suggestively as the, the car like continues to speed along the road. Roars um, forward into the night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then we will usually get the deal, uh, the dual sequence right after this. So um, we no longer get the hand opening the door. We get like, so the going to the stairs is also this kind of constant driving motion um, of like the gates opening and the camera, like moving past it as they open for it. And then like water falling and, you know, it like continues to move towards the, the actual um, staircase that we see. Um, and then instead of Utena walking up the stairs, she goes into an elevator where there's Anthe. Um, Anthe vanishes from her school outfit, which lays in a heap on the floor and, um, and then she reappears with Utena in the elevator, at first naked, um, standing in front of her, and then like magically enrobed by a, ro- a rose bright outfit. Um, 
it'll cut throughout this to her abandoned school uniform on the the ground, which gradually becomes filled with branches and then they um, blossom into roses. Um, And then when they get to the top of the the elevator, um, Anthe is now sort of uh, involved in the transformation of Utena's school uniform, which previously it was kind of her uniform would just like shimmer and then like stuff would get added to it. Um, but here we see, you know, in like magical girl transformation, but we see, um, Utena naked as like the silhouette kind of, and then Anthe like almost running her hands hands over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and making the duelist outfit appear, um, the like princely outfit that she wears during duels. So, um, and then the opposing duelist will, uh, like, the gate will open and the car will be there and they will come out with their own Rose Bride. Um, as we go through this, I will say who each person's Rose Bride is. Um, and then this is different in the first case, but in most cases, um, Anthe pulls Utena's sword from her art. Um, so previously we had seen... Um, Utena pulling the sword from Anthe's heart, but now it's the, the other way around. And they both say together, grant us the power to revolutionize the world. Um, and then uh, Utena fights with the her own like heart sword or whatever. Um, and then we will also see, a, a, like as part of the sequence, the opposing Rose Bride pulling the sword from the duelist that the duelist will use. Um, also, as a note, the dueling arena is filled with Akio sports car, which jut up like Ant Farm's Cadillac, uh, Cadillac Ranch art installation. Do you know this, Connor? I don't actually. Um, this is a thing that's like kind of well known in the area of Texas, uh, Texas, where it is. If you just like Google Cadillac Ranch um, Amarillo, Texas. Um, oh yeah. This is so. I used to work at Media Burn Archive, um, and. Media Burn Archive is named after uh, an art piece by Ant Farm called Media Burn, where they um, had a car where the only way that you could see out of the car was with a a closed circuit television. Um, So there's like a camera on the top of the car, and then you are watching a TV to like drive the car. And they drove that car into a giant like pyramid of flaming TVs. Um, they did it on the 4th of July and they invited a bunch of news people to come witness it. And then all the news, news coverage was like, we don't even know what the fuck this was. Um, but another <laughs> art project they did was this Cadillac ranch, which, um, originally it was just the normal car sticking out. Um, and the idea is that you can see the, the evolution of the tail fin. Um, and it was also just kind of this weird thing to create where they're like half burying, burying cars in the ground. Um, and then, uh, over time, people started vandalizing it, and they actually encouraged people at that point to just continue vandalizing it. So now, if you go, it's just like completely covered in spray paint, and the cars have been stripped of all of their parts and everything. So, um, interesting. But yeah, and it's I, obviously just a homage to uh, Bruce Springsteen, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's just a slight diversion because whenever I see that those scenes, I'm just like, oh yeah, that art installation from like the 70s or whatever um, that still exists. Um, anyway, Utena's prince does continue to descend from the Upside Down castle to aid her in the duels, um, and she wins each and every duel in this arc. Um, 
And the end of the duels are always presented as a, a car crash. Um, we hear like a car crash sound and we see skid marks and like um, the car. Um, and then the other major sequence here is what I call pillow talk, where it's typically Anthe and Utena lay back in the bed. So um, we'll get into this, but they, they move in with Akio basically. And they have this bed that like, if you imagine like a circle bed, and then you like cut it down the middle and then you like slid them along that bisecting line. Um, so you kind of had like almost like an S shape. Um, that's the, the shape of the, the bed or like two beds basically next to each other. And so it's set up so that like they're basically sleeping. What would be if you had the like circle as a circle would be like head to foot. But since it slid, they're like faces, they're facing each other, but upside down. So they could like do a Spider-Man kiss if they wanted to. Um, that's what I call when you kiss that way is a Spider-Man that, kiss. That's in your fanfic. <laughs> um, and they do frequently. Um, and it's like kind of mimicking the same way that they like lay back into their beds, which we see like them both going at the same time. They will then reach their arms out um, and hold hands across the bed. Um and usually discuss something. So, um, and then this is also mirrored or, or like echoed in some minor scenes where Akio and Toga are observing the duels. Um, and then we'll be, we'll see a little silhouette of like them both in a bed or like two beds and they will like pose similarly leaning, you know, head to foot kind of. Um, so yeah, that, <laughs> That's a long intro to this is a bunch of the stuff that happens here, but we can get into episode by episode now. Yeah. So um, episode 24, uh, The Secret Nanami Diary, um, it begins with uh, Suwabuki being injured, saving Nanami from a runaway horse. Nanami's uh, head is being bit by a giant horse. <laughs> a quick interjection, be- obviously because it's a Nanami episode, um, although this this will kind of change. Uh, in this arc, but like we know the trend by now with Nanami episodes, they're very crow high, um, and this one is like it, pretty crow high as well. Um, it, it recapitulates a lot of the prior, like it's kind of a clip show for the prior Nanami episodes as well. Um, anyway, so Suabuki saves Nanami from a runaway horse. Uh, he's injured, and uh, his secret diary is discovered. Um, as he's like convalescing in the hospital, basically like in a curtained, uh, hospital bed, um, Nanami and Utena and Anthe are in his room, uh, behind the curtain. They are reading through his, uh, diary. Yeah. Notably, Anthe is the one who points out the diary, I will say. And, uh, as they're reading through it, um, they discover that Suabuki has basically been like spying on Nanami and re- recording all of her uh, deeds over the course of the series so far, uh, including her many and varied schemes to, uh, you know, embarrass or otherwise like screw over Anthe. Um, so this is all revealed. Uh, and uh, again, we get a kind of a clip show of it. Um as it progresses, um, we also get some additional scenes of Suobuki's strategies for winning Nanami over, um, which like kind of fills in the blanks uh, for some of the stuff. 
that has happened um, around them. Uh, like, you know, the her uh, Nanami's mysterious pursuer and like blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Also, the also sequence in- where Tsubuki is like, um, if she becomes a cow again, I will just also become a cow and then we can be cows together. I'll be a smaller cow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think um, this isn't a new recap, but I, I, I'm going to add it because I think it's important. Um, it's also like revealed at the end that this is so it's revealed to be a dream of Nanami. Like the majority of this episode is like about like three quarters of the way through Nanami like wakes up and it's revealed that all of this uh, has like transpired in her, in her mind as she's been like dreaming or convalescing from something. Um, I guess from the horse. Uh, <laughs> well, um, so, but there's also a suggestion that, um, she throws herself from a window uh, in, like, what seems to be the dream, and that maybe she's just waking up from that, and that it was all okay. real. Yeah, so there's, like, some confusion around yeah. this, clearly, even between us. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think that's... I think there is some significance to that. I um, think... Well, we will get to the Nanami egg thing i think both of them end with uncertainty whether everything that we just saw was a dream or not (laughs) yeah um um again you know very crow high yeah um all right back to you (laughs) (laughs) um episode 25 their eternal apocalypse uh anthony and utena move in to the chairman's house with akio and we learn that akio's name is derived from the japanese name for the morning star which is the star tied to the fallen angel lucifer i'm not just bringing that in as additional uh information about morning star uh that specifically akio talks about like lucifer and everything um yeah he's really edgy yeah um in a pillow talk scene utena tells anthe to come to her first if she has a problem um anthe responds mistress utena the truth is i but when utena asks what is it um anthe simply says never mind this will recur throughout these episodes um i kind of didn't include it as one of the the big things that recurs but this like i think it only happens twice yeah, I but, feel like there may have been a third time, but um, there's like a very key moment where it happens. There's later. a third. The third time is when Utena, like when it's flipped, and Utena has an opportunity to like say something okay. and doesn't. Yeah. Um. Then uh, Toga and Sionji ride in the sports car with Akio. Uh, Toga tells Sionji that Akio was the one who uh, showed the poor orphan in the coffin, who, again, seems to be Utena, something eternal. Um, this is a question that I have for you, like, right here in the middle of the synopsis. So everyone who skipped the synopsis, <laughs> uh-huh. they're missing this. Um, what's your vibe currently on Akio being Utena's prince from the fable? Uh, where am I at on it? Yeah. Um... Like, I think that's a tough question to answer because of the, like, (laughs) 
because of like the conception of reality like the the like interaction of like time like is anybody you tend to like is anybody in the main um like continuity of like this show like your tennis prince uh like i don't know but even setting that aside i think my answer is no <laughs> okay um um i i i'm curious at this moment i'm not gonna say anything about whether it gets answered uh if it does get answered like who it would be anything like that um i i just want to get like a vibe check right now on where you're at <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm pretty, like, neutral on it. Um, I mean, I want to say no because of my whole, uh, because of how I feel about the situation. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty neutral on it. I, I don't really have, uh, a strong opinion yet. Um, okay. So after the the ride in the sports car um, for the duel, Sionji does not have a rose bride. So this is the one exception to what I talked about previously. Um, and the the duel basically starts as usual, except um, I, I is the sword her, like Utena's normal sword shattered. It's been a little while since I've watched this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so this is where like. This is where that like alternative, uh, like sword pulling thing. Yeah, the, the pulling. The I remember that time. part. I just don't remember if the sword that um, Utena normally uses, if she gets it and it breaks, or just like never comes out. Um, but yeah, yeah she, then, she gets she gets it and it breaks. Um, yeah, and, um, then, and then like Sionji is about to yeah defeat um, Utena and Anthe like pushes her to to save her from. Um, Sionji's attack and then yeah. pulls the sword from Utena's chest. Um, yeah. Um, and then, of course, Utena wins and then after the duel, uh, Akio and Toga in bed watching uh, from afar um, comment on how the sword of Dios did not appear and yet she still won. Um and then in the final scenes, we get Akio calling uh, Anthe to him, and it's implied here, which will be confirmed more later on, that like this is a sexual thing. Um, okay, so episode twenty-six, Miki's next box, uh, Sunlit Garden arranged in parentheses. Uh, it opens with Kazue jumping out of a window to save a falling nest of baby chicks, and she's like dangling from the building. Um, she eventually falls, but Miki kind of catches her. I think she, I mean, she lands and like injures her leg. Um, yeah, but it's nothing, you know, uh, devastating. Uh, so they go home together accompanied by Utena and Anthe. Uh, Miki at now at home, Miki, uh, talks to Kozue about a letter they've just received from their mother um, but Kozue states that they don't need parents because they're basically just wild animals. Um, you know, like a seal or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 back at their home, uh, uh, back at the Akio residence, um, Akio comments that Utena is practically like family, uh, which pleases Utena 
uh, because she never had a family. Although Anthe seems a little bit uh, hesitant at this uh, commentary. Um, we also learn that Miki and Kozue's father is remarrying, remarrying uh, and the glimpse we get of his new wife looks oddly similar to Anthe. And this is something that I actually didn't catch when I was watching through. Um, but interesting. Um, Miki and Kozue are invited to ride with Akio. Um, it is presented as a date uh, between... Well, Kozue and Akio. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Kozue and Akio are shown throughout the episode to be like flirting. Uh, and then when they when Miki goes on this ride, um, it's presented as a date between Kozue and Akio. Um, but they invite Miki. They're kind of playing on Miki's like, you know, love for Anthe. And they invite Miki to imagine himself at the wheel of the car with Anthe as his date. Um using this uh, avenue to basically convince him to duel again uh, to win Anthe for himself. Uh, for the duel, Kozue is Miki's rose bride, um, and she also is seen riding in the car around the dueling arena uh, with Anthe. Um, that's kind of the variation here. Is Normally it's just the rose bride or whatever, but this time it's Kozue and Anthe. Um, and... Uh, Kazue actually tops Anthe at one part. Um, and just so you, so our listeners know, uh, Neve wrote this, so don't blame me. Um, I'm just a street boy and I don't even know what topping means. Um, <laughs> but I did notice this scene though. Um, even though maybe I didn't have the right language to describe it, um, I definitely noticed it. Um, after Miki loses, uh, after this all kind of transpires in um, in the aftermath, Miki and Kozue are shown back at their house uh, again with a with an icy disposition toward one another, um, and Kozue uh, calls Miki a coward. Um, episode twenty seven, Nanami's egg. Uh, Nanami awakens to find an egg in her bed. She wonders if something is wrong with her, or if someone planted it there to make her appear to be a freak. Um, so she's kind of wandering around being like, everyone's going to laugh at me because I laid an egg. Um, she then runs into Jury and misunderstands an interaction. When she runs into Jury, um, Jury drops the large bag with some heavy round thing inside of it. Um, and Nanami thinks that it's an egg, um, and they have a conversation where Juri is talking about her, the ball that's in her bag, which is a bowling ball, and she says the Japanese word for ball, which is Tama, and, um, Nanami is thinking that this is somehow related to Tamago, the, the word for egg in Japanese. Uh, so there's some, like, punning confusion that's happening, and then it's around, like, oh, yeah, I, you know... I've, like, had Tama for years or whatever, you know? Uh, feels great. Mm-hmm. Um, I started you know, out with a really small one, but now... Yeah, I started out with a small a one, but now I have a really big one and everything. Um, and so after this, Nanami begins to worry that um, actually all girls lay eggs, and she's weird that she's only now starting to lay eggs and that she has a such small egg at that. Um, Middle school, this, am I right? Yeah, it's just this little egg. Um, it's not a giant egg like the cool older girl jewelry lays. Um, 
uh, eventually she ends up deciding to mother the little egg. Um, it's like, look, I laid an egg, I guess is what you do. You're a mom to it. Um, there's some sequences of like traditional music about being a mother and, and her like, you know, sleeping gently with the egg and wishing that it will grow up big and strong and everything. Um, and then during a meal with Toga, uh, asks him if he would prefer a boy or a girl. Um, obviously referring to when the egg hatches, do you want a boy or a girl? Um, but he thinks that she means romantically and says that he would like a girl. And when she says me too, he chastises her saying that men and women are meant to be, uh, together. That's, you know, it's the way of nature. Um, genitals fit together, I guess. And so, you know, there's no possible way that you can have sex when you don't have a penis and a vagina. It just doesn't work that way. Um, Mm. so, you know, in case anyone has already wondered if we, uh, like Toga or not, fuck this dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, in this conversation, he also says, uh, cause she says something like, what would you think about a girl who lays eggs? Um, and he's like, well, it would be such a disgrace, but we get along really well because you're not the kind of girl to lay eggs. Um, which is just further, a bizarre part of the conversation. Yeah. Further confirming his general small mindedness. Yeah. <laughs> um, hearing this, uh, so I think at first Nami tries to eat the egg, but can't bring herself to, and is like, well, maybe I can leave it in the woods and, you know, abandon it. This is all I can bring myself to do. But even that, she's too attached, and she goes back to find it. Um, it is missing, and Sionji is cooking eggs, and uh, at first she fears that he's about to eat her egg, but then she finds her egg. Um safe and sound it's in his giant basket of way too many eggs um also this is like one of the first moments i think of uh we will keep getting the guys in the show wearing like very frilly aprons and siam she's is the most frilly of all of them here um yeah um just like he's camping but he's just like cooking eggs which is not really not normal like camping camp cooking yeah he's just cooking like a shitload of eggs and wearing an apron it, this um, is kind of like a comical i mean this is definitely like a comical sequence with Saiyan yeah. G. this is this is a very crow high episode in some ways but it is like more directly touching on uh, an obvious like puberty and menstruation metaphor in a way that um crow high would never <laughs> um yeah. Or well, I guess I mean, the word made to be fine. Know. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, gonna read all the manga. That. Maybe it's in there. <laughs> yeah. Um. She returns home and then awakens. Uh, it was all a dream. Maybe. Who knows? She crushed it in her sleep. Who knows when that happened? Did she wake up suddenly after everything that happened? Did she came home and she crushed it, or did at some point early on she dreamt the rest of this episode and then crushed it? I don't know. Again, it's, I think it's unclear at what point was there a dream and a wake up. Um, but yeah, I will add, there's also like the very end of the episode is this kind of odd sequence with like choo choo returning to like, to Anthe from like, we don't know where. Um, and Anthe like having this knowing look on her face, um, (laughs) Which 
in conjunction with like I think there's been other stuff. Uh, obviously not confirmed, but there's been some like co- I I think maybe like comical implications throughout the prior episodes of like Anthe, you know, masterminding some of these like torments of of Nanami that just appear to be circumstantial. Yeah. Um I think there's like an implication here that there might be like like choo choo like ate the egg or broke the egg or something. Yeah. Um yeah, that's that's this episode. <laughs> yeah. So that leads into um episode twenty eight, uh Whispers in the Dark. Um wherein the old captain of the fencing club returns to campus, uh, and he is a blue-haired bishi named Tsuchiaruka. Uh, he also notably has a rose signet ring, somehow, uh, and is thus a duelist. I guess he got the ring in the hospital. He's, he also has, like, anime wasting disease. Um, uh, and, and for some reason, he's aware of the end of the world as well. Um, so he kind of has this inside knowledge uh, in spite of his absence from school, uh, Ruka claims he has no intention to join the duels and merely wants to enjoy normal school life as he continues to recover from his anime-wasting disease. Um, he ends up wooing Shiori, uh, the object of Judy's affections, and Judy believes that he knows everything, uh, including her love for Shiori, um, and then Luka and Shiori ride in Akio's car. And Ruka tells Shuri that uh, together they will have the power to make everything theirs. Uh, and they proceed to the duel where Shuri is Ruka's uh, rose bride. Uh, and in the car crash at the end of the duel, Shuri is the one hurt uh, while Ruka uh, still stands. Yeah. Um, this continues into episode 29, Azure Paler Than the Sky, where uh, basically Ruka is like, you failed me um in the duel and uh shiori is pleading for him to stay with her um but he seems set on breaking up with her um jury who i i believe this started in episode 28 but is like basically been wanting ruka to stay away from shiori and break up with her um is now seeing shiori just completely devastated by the breakup and uh pleads with ruka to take her back so that basically the girl that she loves will be happy again um even if it's not with her um, after she, she like makes this plea, Ruka basically sexually assaults her, forces her against the wall and kisses her, um, and tears the pendant from her neck. Um, and he's about to crush it under his foot when Juri slaps him and challenges him to a duel. Um, after the challenge to the duel, I believe there's a commercial break and then it comes back and it's like, it's kind of weird because we don't see the duel, but it'll happen eventually. Um, but instead what we see is Ruka, not Toga inviting Juri to ride with Akio. I, I forget if it's a commercial break or a uh, shadow play. Cause I think those it's, are separate things, but so the duel is like skipped over the, yeah, it um, comes back later. I just don't remember it's cross-cut later on. Yeah. I just don't remember. They, there's something that happens in between the challenge to the duel. And then the scene where, um, Ruka, the- invites jury to ride with akio and i forget exactly what but it's like it's somewhat jarring but then there's is still something that's like interstitial and i forget if it's the shadow player or the um eye catch for the commercials there is Um, a short dialogue between the two of them 
that is like presented in like shadow yeah um, oh yeah where, they kind of are the shadow play yeah and it's like the immediate aftermath of the duel and yeah. it's like uh ruka is like oh you always had the most potential um but like blah 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 and then jury's like oh i but i hit a wall and then yeah. it, and then the car stuff happens yeah so um uh yeah despite Ruka being the one who invites Yuri to ride with Akio, Toga does still say his final line on cue. Um, and then it's Akio, Ruka, and Juri riding together. Um, and basically they're talking about, like, what would you use the power for? And Juri says she would use it to free... Um, I guess, I think she just says free her and not specifically says Shiori, but it's heavily implied is wants to free Shiori. Yeah, um, definitely. And then uh, for the duel... Uh, Ruka is Juri's Rose Bride. Um, and then, as we kind of said already, we see scenes of their earlier duel intercut with the, the duel between Juri and Utena. Um, at the end, and this is paired with, like, a thing about miracles, um, you know, another line about this, like, idea of miracles, believing in miracles, um, Utena doesn't pierce the flower as usual. She pierces the pendant. Uh, which breaks into pieces and is, you know, broken on the, the floor. Um, and then Juri stumbles and, um, you know, seems very shaken by this and then takes the flower off of her own chest and drops it to the, the ground in apparent sorrow. Um, and then, yeah, th- so this is also part of it, is that they're kind of the shadow play, and then the shadow play appears, but not at the wall where you would expect it. Um, instead, it is the walls of a hospital where... Um, they seem to be nurses and are telling a story of a sick boy who wanted to return to the school's offensing captain to save a girl, but tragically died. Um, bum, bum, bum. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're given to understand that this is like, like Luca uh, yeah. has like now died and, you know, and then there's like some commentary by, by jury, like musing on this fact yeah um in uh episode 30 the barefoot girl uh akio saves utena from the vice principal and school counselor uh, who are once again telling her her boy's out uniform is against the rules uh akio comments that he is a fan of her quote-unquote gallant style and calls her noble and strong and says you're my sister's my special friend uh, he takes Utena to his car, but Wakaba, who has eyes for Akio, uh, ends up going with Akio solo, leaving Utena behind. Um, later, while thinking of Akio, uh, Utena stumbles after dunking uh, and hurts her ankle. Um, Anthe helps Utena and once again tries to tell her something, uh, but ultimately Akio drives Utena uh, to the hospital, this time leaving Anthe behind. Um, and repeating Wakaba's line about a third spoiling a date. Um, so, you know, n- introducing like, oh yeah, this, this is a date. Um, Akio is revealed to be into feet stuff and also kisses Utena in the car um, after taking off her shoe uh, on her um, injured foot. Yeah. Uh, throughout What's Anthea the feet Pierce, stuff, Connor? Yeah. Um, you know, that's standard moves for feet yeah. stuff. Um, 
throughout, Anthea appears periodically with her glasses uh, glinting in the light, uh, very uh, Gendo-esque, um, obscuring her, her eyes, um, yeah. standing menacingly in the background. Um, during the pillow talk sequence, Anthea and Utena discuss how part of loving someone is out of your control. Um, Utena is having... Uh, there's all this discussion about uh, you know, Akio having a fiance and Utena is like feeling guilty about that. Um, and obviously, you know, there's other stuff happening there. Um, that is complicated. Um, so it's like a thinly veiled, you know, conversation, uh, about this. And, uh, you know, uh, Anthe and actually is kind of like, Oh yeah. You know, um, Loving someone isn't entirely in your control. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Toga confesses to Akio that he thinks he has genuinely fallen for Utena, uh, and they talk about how great she is. Um, Kanai's mother uh, comes by uh, to confront Akio over neglecting her daughter. Um, but then Akio seduces her too, uh, in much the same way as Utena, uh, including the feet stuff. Um so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, episode 31, Her Tragedy. Uh, so we see, for the first time in this arc, the fable of Utena's Prince. Um, and then there is sort of this unfolding story where um, Nanami is continuing to pine over her brother, uh, includes like watching him in the shower, stealing his cell phone, and uh, whatever it rings, and it's a girl making a booty call to to toga she breaks up with the girl being like aren't you an idiot or you know you're such an idiot like why are you calling clearly he's breaking up with you blah 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 and then being like who is this other girl you know um eventually nanami is saved from it's like kind of comically set up but like having a giant sculpture thrown at her while slipping on a banana from choo-choo um and akio like swoops in and saves her from um being injured and uh then they go home to where akio anthony nutena live um and nanami kind of watches the sexual tension between anthony and her brother um she's like feeding akio the shaved ice and stuff um it's kind of fuming over this um but also seems to be developing a crush on akio as this um also dashing you know big brother Brother. type um yeah um and also like some jealousy too over like oh it seems like anthe has what i would want with toga um eventually so throughout this they've been like talking about uh blood type compatibility and uh the lackeys ask nami for toga's blood type and she's like well our entire family is has blood type b except toga who has type a and they're like well, wait, that doesn't make sense if both of your parents are type B, that he would be type A. Um, and so that means that they're not related. Uh, this revelation actually seems to hamper her crush on her brother, uh, makes it not as enticing to her. Um, and uh, she's also kind of upset that he would keep this from her um, and stays with Akio, Anthea, and Utena because um, she doesn't want to return home to Toga. Um, for the pillow talk scene, it's actually, um, 
Nanami laying in bed instead of Anthe, um, and they talk a little bit. And then when she gets up, um, I think she's like kind of upset with Utena. I forget the exact topic of the discussion, but um, she goes out and discovers Akio having sex with Anthe and is traumatized by this. Um, also, yeah, the so. yeah the other the other note here is that because um, this also will kind of come up in the next episode is Anthe is like very still in the shots, but it, it's at this point I think also unclear because of how um, we're almost getting like flashes of things that Nanami saw as like still images. Yeah, yeah. There's a still image of Akio, and then there's like three of Anthe, including yeah. including her foot with her shoe off. Yeah, of course. Um, more more foot stuff. Um, episode thirty two, the romance of the dancing girls. Uh, Nanami is uh, still mad about Akio and Anthe, um, and still like kind of fuming over the Toga situation as well. Um, so she spies in on Toga kissing another girl, um, in the greenhouse. Um, and Toga either, like, I think it's, it's uncertain whether he notices her or not, um, in my recollection. Um, but, uh, like, nonetheless starts to say some pretty cool things about how they're never related, uh, and he never really cared about Nanami. He only pretended to because his father asked him to, uh, and insults Nanami in various ways. Um, so Nanami finally snaps, breaks into the greenhouse, reveals herself, um, and realizes that, uh, uh, well, in, in this whole sequence, you know, realizes that Keiko is the one who's kissing Toga. Um, she slaps Keiko, but then Keiko slaps her back, uh, harder, um, and calls her a freak and, uh, Toga and Keiko basically, um, you know, just disgrace Nanami. Um, Nanami returns to Akio's house uh, when Anthe tells Utena to let Akio and Kanai have time alone together um, while in, in the other room we see Akio with in this like horror movie like shot with a seemingly comatose Kanai feeding her some like slice of apple yeah. Um uh, so, you know, Anthe kind of stops Utena from, from interrupting this, whatever it is. Um, She's also holding a saw that she was using to cut more shaved ice. Yeah, yeah. Anthe has some horror vibes here as well. Um, holding a giant saw. And Nanami, you know, picks up on this and calls Anthe scary. Um, Toga calls Nanami and they uh, they then ride in the sports car with Akio. Um, they ask if Nanami, they ask Nanami if she and Toga are really like Akio and Anthe, um, basically confronting her with, um, you know, what you saw between Akio and Anthe is like what you wanted for yourself and Toga, is it not? Uh, and she, you know, she reacts with like disgust and anger and denies it. Um, and then challenges Utena uh, to a duel um, for for complex reasons, I would say. Um, 
Yeah. That we'll probably get into. Uh, but uh, brings Toga along as her Rose Bride. Um, and in the final scenes after the duel, um, another one of these scenes with uh, Akio and Toga lying in bed together. I think they, they are in bed together this time. Yeah. Um, with their shirts unbuttoned, uh, you know, just chatting away. Um, it's revealed that Toga and Nanami actually are uh, blood-related after all, um, but they were both just adopted together, and Nanami was a baby at the time, so she doesn't remember. Uh, final episode, The Prince Who Runs Through the Night. So um, we hear the fable of Utena's prince again, uh, but this time, instead of the normal uh, image sequence that we get, it is over images of a Ferris wheel in the distance at night which uh, we'll kind of learn throughout this episode is simulating the view outside the window of get some, the vibe I get is like a hotel room where, um, yeah, where Utena and presumably, although um, also it's like, we'll, we'll hear dialogue from Akio, but we don't really see him throughout this episode. Um, We just hear him talking at points. And a lot of it is from this, like a lot of the, the, um, scenes where we're seeing Utena talking kind of gives this vibe that we are like seeing Akio's perspective in this room. Um, and it's confirmed ultimately, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. At the end. Um, and, uh, so this is, you know, this is intercut with, so as they're like in this room, um, this hotel room, seemingly, uh, they're like playing games like, uh, go, um, which, uh, Utena loses the, the game. Um, and then we're, we're getting clips from the arc that we just discussed recounting the duels. So, you know, we see the, the main duels here. Um, and the, the stuff here around the duels is framed as Akio. Um, oh, I forget if we, we mentioned this, but, um, you know, Akio has short hair in like the, what I would, I would classify as like quote unquote real scenes, right? Like the, mm-hmm. around the, um, home, the like chairman's house or whatever. Um, but in the sequence with the sports car, Akio has this like long flowing hair. Um, he has the, Anthe has a similar dynamic where she just like magically has long hair sometimes now. Yeah. Even um, though like it's short most of the time. Yeah, although with her short hair, it's often, like, up. Like, her normal shorter hair kind of has a vibe of, like, oh, it's, like, all up in braids, maybe. Um, yeah. It, it makes a little fair. bit more sense with her than with him, where it just is, like, no, his hair is just longer now. Um, but they do kind of, you're right, they parallel that. I think it, there's just a more of a it's possibility like a magical hair lengthening yeah. aspect. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he's driving in a sports car alone and calls into a radio quiz show that is hosted by the shadow players. The, the, like two girls who do the shadow play stuff. Um, it's at least it's their voices. Um, and they do the, like, I wonder, I wonder whatever. Um, and they ask him what is eternal. And I think the three options that they give, I believe it's three, is a diamond, a beautiful memory, or peaches. Um, canned peaches. And, <laughs> what? <laughs> canned peaches. And peaches, yeah. Um, well, he has to pick one of those three options, so that's why I put or. Um, 
anyway, uh, he continues to get distracted from this quiz when he's getting other phone calls uh, to go pick up the duelists from this arc. Um, and so that's kind of the, the framing stuff around those shots. And then it, you know, keeps going back to this like date in this hotel room. Um, in the end, Akio and Utena apparently have sex. Um, it's kind of the scene at first of just, uh, Utena, like a close up of her face in bed, uh, kind of rambling about what she's going to do, um, about cooking lunch for herself and Anthe for the next day. Cause she's going to get back late. Um, and then I believe, um, Akio at a point says miracles happen every day. We just don't notice them. And Utena asks, uh, tell me what is eternity? Um, and then at the point where it seems like they, they really are having sex. Um, we get a shot of like the road at night where written as if like warning labels on the road is stop, stop, stop. Um, and then, uh, she heads home commenting, uh, that she only came to deliver roses for Anthe. Um, the other thing, I think it's in this episode too, is the part where, where Anthe goes to the planetarium to look at stars and there's a phone call between, um, Akio and Anthe, uh, where yeah, Akio's like, comes back. why aren't you out looking at such a beautiful night basically? And Anthe's like, I don't want to look at real stars. Um, yeah, that it opens the episode and that also closes the episode. Yeah, and in the in the opening, we only hear Anthe's side of the conversation, and in the close, we hear both. Um, yeah, in the close, we see like it's it's at this end point of the episode where we finally like see Utena and Akio like driving together, like on yeah. their date or whatever, and um, like we see from Utena's perspective, like we, we realize that all of these like, uh, or maybe not all, but at least. Uh, some of this is from Utena's perspective, like watching Akio um, in the driver's seat and he's having this call with Anthe and then it reverses and we see Utena in the passenger seat. Yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of a complicated uh, uh, episode here yeah. um, to say the least. Um, so I feel like we'll, we all have a lot to say that. So one, one thing I'm going to say, like, up at the front here. Um, we will kind of go through some of the other stuff. Um, I know that I, I probably want to spend the most time on like Akio, Tenna and Anthe, um, and what's going on there because I, I feel like, um, and we can talk a little bit about what some of this stuff is doing, but, um, at this point we kind of like, we know the story of Miki and Kozue, right? Um, Mm -hmm. stuff gets developed a little bit, but not, I think what's happening more in these episodes is not developing their stories individually, but rather um, tying them more clearly under like, what are the overarching plots that are happening here? Like, I think a big thing for me that's happening in these episodes really is, um, and we can kind of get into the Nanami comedy bits first to, to talk about this. Um, But there's, there's sort of a way that, uh, we are seeing the way that these like individual characters have been kind of manipulated throughout the story um, in order to like partake in these duels. And I think we start getting a clearer sense of like the way that Utena is also being manipulated. And it, it mm-hmm. is taking these like more clear cases that we've sort of seen and then tying them all into here's like this full system that's happening. And here is 
in the way that like we see short moments of Akio kind of seducing people to like be his, a duelist for him. Um, we get this like far larger over this arc seduction of, of Utena um, and grooming of Utena, I think is important to, to emphasize this. Like before we hit record, you and I, Connor, were talking about like Akio is, you know, probably mid to late twenties. Um, they don't really like specifically state in age. Um, and some of it is kind of, uh, intentionally yeah. made weird. By, or hundreds of years old. Yeah. It could be hundreds of years old. <laughs> um, if we are to like believe stuff from the black rose saga. Um, but yeah. So I don't know if you have any beginning stuff in response to that, or if we just want to get into the Nami's comedy bits and we'll talk about that stuff as we go. Um, yeah, I think we can get around to that uh, after we talk about uh, Nanami quickly, like, at, at the front. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, so you, I don't know if you have more stuff with the clip show than I kind of do. The, the big thing for me is just, um, what I find interesting about that clip show is the way that it is contextualizing a lot of the goofier, like, you know, quote unquote, we've been referring to as crow high episodes of the show. Um, and tying it a little bit more directly with, um, this like burgeoning sexuality and puberty that we're seeing with Tsuabuki. Um, you know, we get him like looking at his genitals under the blanket, uh, in the, the hospital and like trying to cover himself up, um, with the hospital blanket. And then like towards the end of the episode, yeah, it gets pulled away. Um, and I think some of the stuff is then getting echoed in the saga in darker ways later on as well, because it's kind of focusing here on like Tsuabuki's desire for Nanami, um, which we are, are then going to continue. Like part of what's happening is the way that um, some of these other younger characters are also desiring older characters and the, the like problems therein. Right. Um, yeah. But I don't know if you have, I don't know if you have more specific thoughts on that episode in particular. Yeah, I think this is the key point for me as well. Um, it, I think what it does is like, so there's this key theme around like puberty and sexual maturity that I, I think kind of dominates uh, this arc, and it's it's introduced here with Suibuki. Um, I think one of the things that's happening is like Suibuki is obvi- like also experiencing this, um, but like he's he's considerably younger, right? Like he's in elementary school, so he's not at like his desire for Nanami. Um, even though like it does, you know, have like some sort of romantic valence to it, um, or or like you know. In the sense that it's possible for like an elementary schooler, um, it's not like it's not a, you know adult sexuality in the way that we are soon going to see. Um, yeah. So I think there's like an escalating effect that happens where like um, it it's almost like a uh, a lead up or like a transitional like pivot point um, of being like. Okay, here we're introducing this theme. Um, this has kind of been like in soft focus throughout the series so far, like the sexuality of these characters. 
Um, but now it's going to come into very like clear focus. Um, and like the hard realities of all of this are starting to hit. Um, and Suibuki is like that, tra- that transitional point of being like, you know, oh yeah, he's like starting to experience like puberty and, you know, um, realize his sexuality and, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but not in like the actualizable way, um, that we're going to have to deal with, like, in like starting with the next episode um so it's kind of like an introduction to um to this this theme um there's also like you know he's as you mentioned we get this scene of him like looking under the covers at his genitals um trying to like hide his nakedness when he goes to like take his diary away um but there's also stuff around um like masculinity um he has a line where he's like you know when he and nanami are kind of arguing about his his schemes and like all this stuff delineated in his diary um he's like oh i've been trying to become a man worthy of you yeah um and there's images of like toga you know he understands like that toga is the person that nanami desires um and there's images of toga like with his like you know shirt in various stages of like disarray and fighting the kangaroo like you know being this like strong tall like uh you know like dashing man um and this like paired with subuki's anxieties about his body like not you know being a man worthy of nanami like a- again all of this is like tied together, um, yeah, and like setting the stage for yeah. this other stuff that's coming up. There's also the for me. There's a certain amount of like, like I recently had to re- record the um, content warnings for the show, including stuff that like I kind of know with the last six episodes too, um, and this show is a like you know, we are fully seeing it at at this point that this show deals with some like very heavy topics. Um, Mm. and if you go back and you watch the student council saga stuff, um, this stuff is being brought up then, but, um, it's almost like each arc is kind of easing you more and more into like, no, we're going to be talking about like dark stuff. Um, and this is one in this episode in particular. Um, and I think some of the stuff that ha- is happening with Nanami um, throughout the series and then coming up to like this arc um, is really like playing into or, or is like working in this way of like, no, we're like tying in even the goofiest parts of this um, series into these themes that we're talking about. Yeah. And we're kind of, we have like these three, or I guess four, um, the Nami episodes, because they're sort of the two-parter. Um, and so this like clip show, we kind of get stuff reiterated with Tsuobuki and Nanami, but again, it's kind of comedic. Um, there's not as much like a, a sense of like, uh, as you were saying, like an, an actual like fulfillment of anything that's happening. And I think also a, a key thing is that like, 
you know, in those earlier episodes, we kind of get Nanami taking advantage of Tsuabuki, but in this way of just like, oh, like, I have a servant, right? Um, And we're going to see another, like, this sort of situation play out, but in ways where um, it becomes far darker and more, like, like, I would not say that Nanami is is grooming Tsuabuki. She's just kind of taking advantage of a, a little kid being infatuated with her to, like, have a servant who's going to like carry her books for her. Right. Um, and that's mm-hmm. still like shitty, but it is not on the same level as like what Akio is doing here. Um, and so we kind of get this, like in the way that the show is ramping us up into some of these things, we also get the like Tsuobuki to Nanami, Nanami to Toga. And then like the way that Nanami and Toga, like the show will continue to figure Toga and, Akio is like Toga being like almost like Toga is taking Akio's playbook, right? Um, yes. He's like trying to be a little Akio. Um, we kind of see in this. Uh, both of them suck so bad. Um. <laughs> I, I think there's also like a way that, um, like the relationship that Nanami, that Toga and Nanami have, like as you're as you're pointing out, like. There's a way that Nanami is reproducing, like, her relationship with Toga and her relationships with, like, various, these other people that she has relationships with, like, specifically Suobuki and, like, her lackeys. Yeah. Um, In the same way that, like, Toga has all of these, like, women that he treats as, like, disposable and, like, uses and, um, you know, just generally, like treats very poorly um and like you know obviously nanami is uh is part of this in a way that she's forced to acknowledge later um but uh nanami like it also you know um domineers over people uh treat like tries to establish this kind of relation where um they're you know they're devoted to her um they do all of her things for her, um, you know, this very like unilateral domineering type of relationship. Um, so I think, I think the show is definitely drawing that connection of being like, yeah, you know, Nanami is like reproducing, um, this like abusive dynamic, um, in her own relationships. Yeah, I think we both get, like, we get the the reproduction down of, like, here's, like, Akio, and then, like, Toga's modeling himself on Akio, and then, like, Nanami's in some ways modeling herself on Toga. Um, And then we also get the, the, like, reverse, too, which is that, like, as this kind of um, dynamic, like, ages up, it becomes um, more and more dangerous, I think, as well. Um, Yeah. As it it moves more into, like, the... um, Cause even like, like Toga is extremely shitty and is treating people poorly. And I'm, I'm not saying that like anything that he's doing is acceptable either. Um, but I think fits a little bit more into like, uh, like everybody in this show up and up until this point, really, aside from like, um, the, the big ones being Akio. And then also like we get some in the black rose saga with like Kanai and I would also maybe say the the professor, um, is kind of also in this territory, but like most of the the people in the show are high school or younger. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this like 
there's this um like very like uh, i would almost say like blunt and um like like they are dealing with like these emotions of uh, like love and the other complex things around them in ways that you would expect of teenagers who are like first confronting them for the first time um and don't really know how to handle them and so Toga is terrible and manipulative, but also in a way where um, I do not expect Toga to, to grow out of it, but there is like, there's more room for like Toga to, to like see the errors of the way that he's treating people and like right. move past this. And um, he's like, his, he's like making out with all of these girl these girls. And again, like, that's obviously not like harmless. And then the emotional manipulation, like none of that is harmless. Yeah. Um, but like when we get, when we get like the perspective of Akio now, who's just like, you know, straight up having sex with like middle school and high school girls. Yeah. Um, and like a full on like predator. Yeah. Uh, then like, you know, it, it casts Toga's stuff as like, it is a little bit less serious, yeah, although it's, like the it's same both type like, of thing. Yeah, it's like less serious, but also is so easy to see how that kind of person in high school becomes the kind of person who Akio is. Um, if like they're they aren't able to like move beyond Change. or or yeah, um, and this also, I mean, we we brought this up, but like the egg episode for me is is you know so much of it is around this idea of puberty and menstruation and um you know entering into like sexual maturity in this this way where like an egg very obviously symbolizing like fertility and things like that um Mm -hmm. but that it's specifically being these tensions around like being in that moment where you're just beginning to move into sexual maturity um you know, some of the humor in this is coming around humor that like, uh, you know, presumed like female audience would, would understand and, and get as like going through, you know, getting your first period and things like that. Um, that's like some of the humor is specifically around the like fears and it is, it is like far more horror than the, it's still maintaining jokey tone, but is like dipping more into horror than a lot of stuff has previously. That's, that's in this like crow high mode. Um, and because it is like at, at times joking, but also at times just showing the like, um, horror and uncertainty of like going through puberty and, and having, um, like realizing that you are now a person who could like get pregnant and have a child. Um, and that being like kind of a a scary thing to go through as again, Nanami. And it's also like, especially early in the series brought up heavily of like Utena and Nanami are both, you know, around the same age. They're both middle schoolers. Um, and I think this episode is also bringing this in again to like have something that's maybe going to have some, some, um, lighthearted jokiness around it. Um, but it is also like priming you to think more about like Utena is just a middle schooler. Like she's a, a very young girl, um, which I think is also important because anime is of such a thing, like conventions of anime 
is of such a thing where um, it can sometimes like be easy to forget the age of characters, I think. Right. Um, And this, this episode, the, the Nanami's egg episode is like really heavily emphasizing the age of Nanami, but also, um, you know, like in relation Utena, as we are then seeing Akio's advances against Utena. And it's, it's really contextualizing that and emphasizing the, the predatory grooming nature of everything that's happening. Um, And so it's, it is like, that the, the times that I've watched, you know, this is the the second time I've watched this episode. I've watched it once before too. Um, Nanami's egg is the one that like, I, I kept not knowing exactly how much to talk about, but like, you know, we kept talking about like, here's these goofy episodes and Nanami's egg. The first time I watched it just like hit me so hard because of the fact that um, you start watching, you're like, Oh, this is going to be another one of those goofy Nanami episodes. And by the end, you're just like, Oh my God, fuck. Like, <laughs> Um, this is dark, um, yeah. not because of the episode itself necessarily, but because of like what it is reminding you of, like, here's what's happening throughout this series. Um, it, yeah. And it is easier. Like, well, well, first I'll say like, um, quickly returning to like the episode 24 of Subuki, um, like, I think there's an inflection point in this episode where it's, it's what we were kind of debating during the recap where I think you can interpret, like, all of these events with Subuki are, you know, a, dr- a dream that Nanami's having. Um, and if you take that interpretation, like, it becomes this inflection point where, like, all of this anxiety of, like, the body, sexu- like, puberty, sexuality, um, like, nakedness, uh, exposure, like can now be understood as Nanami's anxiety. Um, And like, if you, if you take that interpretation, there's like this inflection point where, you know, okay, now we're talking about like these main characters. We've moved from talking about like an elementary schooler to like these middle school girls. And then by extension, like, you know, all of these characters um, generally um, and then we have the Nanami's egg episode, which like, you know, brings out all of those things that, you know, that, that you just discussed. Um, and yeah, like it gets in this like movement, it gets dark really fast because the Nanami's egg episode, like, even though it is comical, it's very easy to see how this could be a completely different type of story. Um, and I'm thinking specifically about like Nanami, like Nanami's isolation, uh, like her inability to like speak to anybody uh, about like what she's going through, and the fact that she like has this egg, which is you know presented as an analog for a child, um, and you know in all of these ways. Um, and then kind of culminating with her like taking the egg into the forest and just like abandoning it under a tree because she can't like psychologically deal with like all of these circumstances. Um, again, like because it's an egg, it is comical. Um, but I think we're kind of like, 
invited to, you know, imagine this not being an egg, this being like an actual child. And if you do, uh, if you take that short step, um, then it's suddenly like an extremely dark uh, episode. Yeah. I also think it's significant that um, with the conversation with Toga, um, the series also kind of ties some of this like other anxieties that they're talking about in terms of just like sexual maturity and and puberty and things Um, with a certain amount of like, and also homosexuality being, being figured in here. Um, And this is something that like, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, we talked about this in Ray Earth. I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we finish the series as well. Um, But I think this, this it's important to remember um, as we're talking about some of this stuff too, and the queerness in this series that um, again, like, especially at this time, the um, context in Japan and the like thoughts around like homosocial behaviors and like, you know, um, homosexuality and things is like this age of discretion where like, as you, you become an adult, that's where you, you get the actual expectations of like, um, you know, to like settle down with someone of the opposite sex and have a kid and like, you know, create this like family unit that, um, is expected of people for like society, right. To like be a good member of society. Um, and that sort of when you are younger, that is where, um, queerness is more allowed because you like, you haven't entered that part where you are now expected to be a part of like a functioning member, quote unquote, of society in these, these ways. Um, I bring this up because I, I think as we get into like the last six episodes, we'll, we'll talk about this more around um, like the androgyny of Utena in particular and how some of that stuff gets figured. Um, but I think that's also kind of being brought in with these comments from Toka about like, Oh no, like, you know, men and women fit together. It's like the natural way. Right. Um, yeah. It, it continues to loom like over the series for sure. Yeah. Um, um, and it, it's specifically pro- being brought in as like something that is also tied to these anxieties that Nanami's having around, um, you know, puberty and sexual maturity that it is, it, that, that is like also the moment where this becomes important. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's worth noting that like the Toga like giving this conservative like essentialist view is is framed as a joke, like like it's yeah. framed as comical, like he he's framed as absurd in doing this. Um, yeah. So I do want like I do think it's important to to note that as like you know, this, like, the presence of heteronormativity, like, it, as we discussed in our, in, you know, for the prior arcs, like, it's it's here and, like, looming over uh, to a degree, um, but it's also, like, continuing to be, uh, you know, the, the most extreme, like, you know, essentialist views are, are continuing to be... Um, treated like very critically um you know as they have been like throughout um even while like they're you know um 
they still hold real force uh, in, in the world as well. Yeah. Um, also, the the thing I want to say about this episode of Nami's Egg is part of why it, it, I think, hit for me the first time that I watched it, and also a little bit um, this time as well, is that, um, like, I, I will let you speak if you have more to say about 25 and 26, but to me... 25 in particular, I feel like it, it is mostly just like introducing you to all of the new recurring things, right? Um, so much of it is like setting up. And so it it's interesting, but not in this way where I want to talk about like that one episode, but I just want to rather talk about like the sports car, the like way that the duels happen now, these kinds of things in a way that is like first introduced in that episode but not contained in that episode and so the stuff that's actually like about Sionji just doesn't feel as interesting um yeah. like the one big thing to it for me is just the like um reveal or at least like stated thing that Akio showed the the poor orphan in the coffin something eternal um that yeah like, it and the reveal it, at the end of like Akio calling Anthe to him um, well, if, if you're okay with it, let's, let's zoom out for a second. And then, cause I just want to talk like more generally about this theme that we've been talking around. Um, yeah. so like, you know, as we've already posited, uh, I think the dominant theme in this arc is this theme of like puberty and sexual maturity. And, uh, for me, this is my first time watching um, so I was very struck by the fact that there is a uh, massive shift in tone, uh, characterization, and like explicitness uh, that happens in this arc, um, like in accordance with this theme. Um, everything from like I just have a list here, you know, one the major plot points and sources of character tension. Uh, to two, you know, cosmetic changes in animation character presentation. So, like, coloration of lips, um, evoking, like, lipstick in, uh, I noticed this in Nutena, um, but also in, in other characters as well as, like, more prominent. Um, longer billowing hair, um, you know, we see, like, especially in the final episode of this arc, there's, um, There is shots of like Utena's hair that are very like you know erotic. Um, Anthe suddenly has is is revealed to have this long billowing hair, um, in in various scenes. But um, you know we see it in these like sex scenes with Akio, um, and then Akio obviously having this magic long hair when he's like riding on the car. Blah blah blah. Um, there's unbuttoned, it's so many unbuttoned shirts just yeah. everywhere. Um, there's like falling off shirts, you know, um, on the girls, like shirts in various states of disarray. Um, you know, characters shown in like night dresses and like underwear. There's a scene where Kozue is just like straight up in her underwear um, or, or something that like straight up resembles underwear. Um then we have, you know, massively increased sexual symbolism um, and innuendos uh, just all all across the um, 
the arc. Uh, and then, of course, we have, like, explicit portrayal of sexual acts. Um, just, like, topping all of this off. Um, so just, like, in basically every way, this, uh, this arc is just foregrounding uh, sexuality. Um, and, you know, and then this anxiety around bodies that we talked about. Um, Nanami's egg laying be, being probably the, the most um, illustrative example. Um, and I think, like, for me, you know, the, the focus here is now on these characters, like, experiencing the beginning of sexual maturity, uh, then being inaugurated into the adult, like, into adult sexuality, uh, for better and for worse. Um, and then the psychological process of realizing and navigating their own uh, sexual desires. Um, and, you know, in the Black Rose saga, there is a, a scrutiny of these characters, like general psychology, motivations, insecurities, um, that it takes note of their sexual dimensions of like this, these general motivations. Um but doesn't like foreground them uh, really. Uh, and here it's just like completely foregrounded. Like this is the object of examination. Um, and this is kind of like to allude to um, what you were saying earlier about the, like the narrative arcs of the various like side characters. I think this is kind of the unifying thing Um is that like you know their narrative arcs don't really move forward uh, a tremendous amount, um, but we get like for pretty much all of them we we get further examination of their like um, of their sexuality like in this process, um, yeah, of like you know coming to puberty or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so f- for me too, like the, there's a lot of stuff that's introduced in episode 25, but, um, it is the one that is like, again, what's introduced there is all these bigger overarching things that are, uh, kind of surprising in the, the moment, but also, um, there's so much of a framing, like it does this work of like kind of taking you from the old duels to this new style, um, mm. to some degree. Um, and then Mickey's nest box is one too, that, um, watching it the second time, I, I think I more immediately picked up on things than the first time that I watched it of, um, you know, we, we get the, Oh, here is, um, like Mickey imagining being on a date with, um, Anthe, you know, driving the car and then, um, Miki lounging. Um, but then this specifically being like Akio again, like a, a full grown adult. And then Kozue is like what's actually happening. Um, and I, I think the first time that I watched this many years ago, um, you know, we, we joked with Ray Earth about how, like, 
despite the fact that like presumably there there's not like that huge of an age difference like Hikaru is like half the height of Lantis, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and like some of it is just like Clamp just does like the tallest fucking boys ever. Um, and, you know, it is also a thing that gets figured in and that we talked about with like Eagle, despite being a boy, being short like the girls. Um, yeah. I mean, Lantis way that... looks like he's like, he looks and sounds like he's like 30 years old. Yeah. Um, but it's not like a thing that's like really brought up or commented upon. And I think in some ways, like some of this, um, shoujo anime stuff can kind of, sometimes that stuff might come up more, but, but often it's kind of just a, like, there, there's a certain degree to it. It's, it's like, oh, well, let's just, you know, you can watch shoujo anime where they're all in high school and still the dudes are just fucking huge. Um, just super tall. Um, it's like to some degree, part of the style. And so with Miki's nest box, I wasn't like, especially the first time this time I, I was because I know where the series is headed. Um, and also I think I, I've been watching more intently, you know, like I wouldn't be surprised if you were like, Whoa, um, because we're probably watching the show more intently than like the first time that I watched this where I was just like, Oh yeah, I should actually watch all of Utena and I'm just going to have it on and like, you know, eat rice and watch it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there've been, but, there've been several times during this arc where I was like, Whoa, yeah. uh, like, I can't believe that actually happened. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, you, you would be correct. Yeah. But I feel like it was Nanami's egg where it like fully hit me of like, Oh shit. Like this is like, middle school or high school girls. And then like this older guy, um, in this way that like up until that point, I hadn't like, it hadn't fully sunken in. Um, right. Like also in the way that, um, like I kind of got the like, Whoa, what's going on with Akio and Anthe when the first time I watched it, but the show had been dealing with like incest in a way where I didn't think about the, the age dynamic in the Absolutely. Yeah, um, and and also we've had like we've been primed for the age dynamics too, because mm-hmm. we had like uh, the professor and like uh, I'm I'm losing the name, but the stuff with like the uh, professor, you know? Yeah, there's like an age dynamic thing there, and like we've seen it already, so it's easy to not be like as jarred by it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I like. I don't know if you have specific thoughts with um, the stuff with like Miki and Kozue or else I, I'd kind of be ready to move on to like, let's talk about jury. Um, and, you know, um, I, I just want to say that like the, um, I think it's important that Akio is like, so there's, there's so much about Akio's character here. Um, that we can talk about um but in like episode uh 25 he like compares himself to lucifer we get this comparison like right away yeah um and in this arc we see him taking on this uh this role of like tempter um where and like seducer um and this uh, this like equation of you know him and lucifer 
uh, taking life in this way. Um, you know, yeah, that and, the, and the like car scenes specifically feel like someone like a satanic figure tempting someone. Absolutely. And there's this dynamic of like, you know, in the Black Rose saga, people are like manipulated into becoming dualists and there's a whole confluted thing, you know, around that they're psychologically manipulated, like blah, blah, blah. Um, In this arc, it is specifically Akio like manipulating the sexuality um, or, you know, manipulating around the sexuality of uh, these people to like get them to become duelists like that is his mo he is this like figure of like sexual temptation and violence uh and manipulation um and you know for every one of these duelists there's like that's the route that he takes um so sionji like i actually do think the thing with sionji is really telling it's because it's the first one we see and it's like um we see him earlier in the episode being like i'm done with this i'm done with the end of the world like i'm not going to be manipulated um i'm not going to do anymore and i'm not going to let like the system control me um but like he ends up dueling um and the reason that he does is because like toga at the behest of akio um appeals to like Sionji's, uh, he appeals to, like, ideals of masculinity. Um, and, like, uh, basically is, in do- like, reeling Sionji back into this, like, uh, you know, patriarchal, like, this toxic, um, you know, sense of masculinity. Um, so he's kind of, like, seduced by this. Um, then we get the introduction of the magical muscle car, um, which you point out at the top is like, you know, this heavily charged, um, phallic, like masculine symbolism. Um, and like Toga, Sionji and Akio riding in this muscle car, like speeding, you know, through the night, uh, like they're, they're literally riding in this symbol of like, you know, of phallic masculinity, um, Sionji letting himself be, like, carried away (laughs) by, like, his own, you know, internalized ideas of masculinity, like, just running wild. Um, And then, of course, like, Akio consummates his symbolism by, like, you know, he's riding on the front of the car, speeding muscle car with his legs spread open, shirt flying open, like, showing his abs and, like, his hair flowing in the wind. Um, And then... We see, like, the next time we see Sionji, he is, like, he's different, right? Like, maybe not different uh, substantively from, like, stuff we've seen him do in the past, um, but he's different from, like, the person that we saw in uh, at the very beginning of the episode, um, where he's, like, in terms of his, you know, his dialogue and his animation, like, um, he's suddenly, like... Uh, extremely like aggressive again um you know he's got the muscle car he's like oh i'm not the same man i was yesterday like can't you tell what's different um which is like kind of comical because 
I feel like that kind of is a psychology of like guys who go buy muscle car for this reason. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, but then being very not comical by like immediately like hitting Miki and like, you know, grabbing Anthony, um, you know, like he used to do and saying like, Oh, I'm going to like, you know, just take her for myself now. Um, and, you know, I think this is a telling, um, the fact that this is what happens first, again, I think it sets the stage for like, okay, this is, you know, these like young students are, you know, having their like, they're being indoctrinated in these certain ways they're being manipulated, like, you know, by appeals to their sexuality. Um, and for Sionji, it's like this, oh, you know, seize your, like, you know, seize your manhood back, like, manhood as defined by, like, aggression and, like, um, you know, violence and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we see it just playing out really, like, explicitly in, in this sequence. Yeah. And we've, we've also seen, like, to then tie this into the next episode, um, there's also a turning up of the stuff happening with Miki and then also like his sister and then also, um, Anthe, because like, you know, the, the first time that there's the duel and Miki's like, Oh, I don't want to like back in the, the, um, student council arc, it's Toga being like, well, you know, basically like if you want to continue to play piano with Anthe, then you need to take what's yours. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, here it's not like do you want to keep playing the piano with anthe it's oh imagine anthe in the spot where your sister is right now of like leaning back and fully you know this like sexualized shot of her uh in the the pulled back car seat Um, yeah like possessing her sexually essentially yeah um so yeah there's definitely like a this um escalating and building of these things that um is occurring and it's it's all tying into this um and again also around akio um Um, yeah and like this it i think these the um it kind of increases in complexity you know like as it goes on so you have like sionji which is fairly straightforward you have miki which like again it's fairly straight like the complications are a little more comp or the uh, motivations are a little more complex but fairly straightforward um and then you know we have like jury uh where like her um like her ascent to become this duelist and like uh to, to become a duelist again and her like riding in this car is around like her love for Shiori um and like around her sexuality um but like and and specifically in this instance like the I think the temptation that is presented to her is like it's it's vague but um I think that the substance of it is like don't you want this power to like actualize like to, to like create this miracle to actualize like what you want 
which is like being with Shuri. Um, yeah. And she like, uh, and we can probably have a more uh, nuanced conversation about Shuri because like what leads up to this. Um, but her response is like uh, kind of self-denial um, where she's like, no, I don't want to express like my, I don't need to be understood. I don't need to express myself or actualize my desires. I just want like Shuri to not be with you, Ruka anymore. Um, I just want to save her from you. Like I've given up on, uh, I'm not going to pursue like this other option. Yeah. Um, this is the mo- I I've often tried to like avoid talking too much about stuff that's going to happen in later stuff. Um, I I think stuff that happens around jury and we've been talking throughout this how um, in some ways like the show seems most sympathetic to jury and I think this even happens. Here. Yes, um, she she expresses the most. Um, Again, she's still choosing the duel, but she's expressing this desire to, like, free someone um, rather than possess someone, which is far more... What are you doing, Lem? Lem's, like, fully terrorizing my... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, and I I think the show, like, presents that with with sympathy towards her. Um, I I agree. um, And I want to... I want to figure specifically, like... I, I want to highlight, I guess, here what what is like the show doing with jewelry and this idea of like wanting to save someone else as we move into the the last six episodes because i i think it's it'll be important for when we're talking about some of what's happening there um again i don't want to give away much else other than like part of why i'm like let's talk about jewelry is because i feel like it is it is one of the parts that is like most going to be at at least the front of my mind when we get to the final six episodes and we talk about what happens there. Okay. Um, yeah. So we can kind of put a pin in that. Um, yeah. Um, now, but I, I, I do want to go ahead. You, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say just for like completionist purposes. And so we can like have this to call back to. Um, I want to bring like Nanami in and how, how she fits into this dynamic. Um, because I think this is, you know, important, obviously. Yeah. Um, so Nanami, like the temp, the, the way that Akio tries to tempt Nanami is, uh, you know, so as we discussed, she has been confronted with like, you know, the Akio and Anthe, um, actualizing this like incestuous uh like sex that um you know it's pretty clear um nanami on some level like it you know wants for herself and toga or maybe you know maybe she doesn't specifically like you know want sex but there's you know there's a incestuous romantic like attraction there um yeah so I, she's con- like a, a thing related to this that i want to bring up is um there is this like i i think the way that she loses interest to some degree in toga um or or like seems more uh put off when she believes that they are not related 
um, is interesting to me because uh, on one hand you can read it as this like part of what she wants is the specifically incestuous thing that that is like specifically what she is desiring and without that there's like some there's something lacking but I think another way that you can also look at this is that like even if they are adoptive brother and sister there's there's still like societal taboos around that right even if there isn't like a a, um even if there isn't a like specific genetic grounding for that in the way that that some would argue that there is for like you know genetic incest um there are still societal taboos around even adoptive siblings or or things like that um and so I think there's also a possible reading of like some of what's happening there is if they are not related, that actually opens up for her more of the possibility of an actualization of that relationship. And that is actually part of what is like scary to her in that moment. Um, and I, I don't think that the show like has a firm conclusion on that, but you know, I think that ties into what she's saying when, she's in the car with Akio, right. Of like, no, we're not actually like you. Um, that like, yeah. maybe she doesn't really want the sexual acts actualization of it. Um, but maybe she does. Right. And that, yeah. I think that remains unanswered. Um, and part of the way that that is happening is also around like, why does she lose interest seemingly? And I, I mean, there's also the read of just like, she's upset that he didn't tell her. Um, Right, that he like kept the secret from her. Yeah, um, which I think is part of it e- either way. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, definitely. Um, and so, I mean, so with that in mind, like, let's just say, you know, there's a romantic, like, attraction to her brother that the sexual dimension of, of which is kind of in question. But um, she wants to, like, be with her brother and, you know, it... And it, it seems like, as it's been figured up to this point, um, she wants to be with him in some sort of romantic way. Um, and, like, you know, the Akio and Anthe thing is a version of this um, realized uh, that she's now confronted with. Uh, and, you know, the temptation is, like, you know, isn't this what you want? Um, like you can have this too. Um, if you become a duelist and like, you know, gain this power, then you can have whatever you want, which, you know, is this, like, don't deny that this is what you really want, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she reacts with like, you know, um, disgust, which again, you know, how we interpret that affect, I think we could make a reading, uh, either way. Um, but what's interesting is like, so she rejects this kind of like jury, like she rejects this initial, uh, proposition and then like nonetheless agrees to become a duelist. Um, and when she's like doing the duel, uh, you know, she's kind of like revealing her, her motivations. Um, and she talks about like, Oh, I want to like, uh, like, I want to have the power to like, you know, surpass 
like everyone and everything. And like, I want to become a new person, essentially. Like what it seems to boil down to is that she wants to like obliterate her, her like current prior identity uh, that is like very tied in with all of this stuff around Toga. Um, and, you know, maybe like she's so like uh, repulsed and like uh, psychologically like twisted up over being confronted with this like, you know, now that she's been confronted with this desire that she has, she can't reckon with it. Um, so she rejects it and like, but that was so tied in with her prior identity. Like now she wants to just like obliterate the entire identity um, or, you know, something along those lines, but there's a kind of uh, like, you know, her, her motivation is she wants to destroy like uh, her, her prior self um, and like become a new person or whatever. Um, so again, like, uh, all of this to say, you know, not only to frame this up for later, but like all of this to say, um, this, like, this dynamic with Akio, like his temptation towards all of these people is tied in like to manipulating their sexuality and their, you know, psychosexual, like, uh, you know, self-conception, um, in like various ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think also I like I know we moved on to the Nanami stuff. Um and there's definitely stuff that we can get more into with Jury next time. But I, I do think there would be some like I, I wanna talk at least a little bit about um like Ruka and Shiori stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and we can maybe like dive a little bit more into the the like jury subplot throughout this next time. Um just in that, like, throughout it, it, it is one that has been most interesting to me because of how um, it just becomes more and more explicit, um, the the love that Juri has for Shiori or the, you know, romantic interest or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, in a way where, again, like, that first episode at the very end, like, you see the photo in the locket and she's like, you know, I hate you because, like you don't understand my feelings or whatever. Um, it's still, it's pretty obvious, but, but by here, yes. it's just like, there's no other way to read it. There's literally it no continues to be confirmed yeah. like more and more explicitly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, so I think the part that's going to be most interesting for like the final six episodes is really thinking about like what has been going on with Jury? What what's like her um, intentions been? Um, what's her relationship with Utena been? Um, you know, it's a thing that like we've touched on of like some of the inter- interactions that Jury has and like reasons why. Um, like of all of the duelists, she's the one who, um, at least heretofore, is like actually helped out. Um, Utena, you know, there, I forget mm-hmm. what episode it is, but like she gives a sword to Utena to, to duel with at one point um, and things like that. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to get into that stuff a little bit more 
um, when we finally wrap this series. Um, I don't know if you have like big things you want to bring up, but I think the, the bigger part that we can kind of um, talk about now, because I don't know how much we'll really talk about it next time is like Ruka and, and um, in that Shiori. relation, the stuff with Shiori, um, which for me, part of what I, I find interesting about it too is um, like that episode in particular uh there's this there's this sense of both of them kind of it's it feels to me at least like i don't know if you have a different read on ruka um it feels to me at least that ruka wants to like uh best and like to some degree like control or have power over juri in the same way that like shiori does um that we saw, especially in the black Rose saga. Arc. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them kind of want to be superior to her and they, they like team up to be, you know, duelist and Rose bride. Um, like seemingly because like, well together, maybe we can both best her. Um, and so like the thing that like brings them together is like their, their shared desire to, um, to best and like be above um and and also to like some degree like control and possess um in this uh other way jewelry and i I think it's interesting for a few reasons which is one the the way that that disintegrates when they aren't able to succeed um the way which they are like actually quite at odds with each other throughout a lot of it um the way that they are trying to both manipulate each other um there's the scene of uh, the sword. Yeah. The sword that falls out of the locker and Ruka says like, Oh, so you're the one who's been, you know, polishing it every day while I've been gone. Yeah. And then uh, her being like, Oh, you know, like basically playing along with like, yes. (laughs) Um, And it's revealed at the end that like, that wasn't his sword he was saying that and she was like ad-libbing just as well as him. Um, right. Of like, Oh yeah, we are both right. (laughs) Like both of them trying to play each other and Ruka kind of had the upper hand to some extent, but, um, but yeah, like throughout it, they were both kind of trying to play each other into using each other to like possess and control jewelry. Um, I think it's also significant because in 29, Right, which is the the one with jury dueling, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. In that one, the the sexual assault that occurs, I I think if we are like contextualizing it, like this is a thing that I, I I think of, I thought of when we were watching the Black Rose Saga as well, um, which is to some degree what what Jury wants is for Shiori to love her, and obviously what Shiori feels is not the kind of love that like jury wants or, or should deserve in like a, a healthy relationship. Yeah. And yet Shiori is very obsessed with, with jury in a, in a way that, um, I, I still think there's a strong vibe to jury and Shiori of like lesbian. Who's just hopelessly in love with a straight girl. Um, but there is a certain obsession that Shiori has with Juri that also borders on 
um, something that could be that could fall more into this realm of like repressed desire expressing itself as um, this like very destructive form. Mm-hmm. And I think that getting para like paralleled with Ruka, who also is like this very destructive, but because you know it is um, you know different gender rather than same gender. Ruka like expresses it in far more like sexualized ways towards Juri than Shiori does. Um, and yet the way that Juri or that um, Shiori and Ruka seem to feel about Juri actually seems very similar to me. Um, and so that's also a thing. That's a, an aspect that I find really interesting about this. Um, yeah. And I mean, you could take that reading to say like, you know, Shiori, Shiori like hooking up with Ruka is you know part of this right like if if you do want to like uh interpret it under the um the lens of like you know this is these motivations are structured around like Judy um then you know maybe Shiori's like willingness to like enter into this you know, sexual relationship with uh, Ruka is, you know, it, to hurt to hurt Judy. Like, um, there's that scene where they're making out, and like, uh, like Judy sees, uh, like Ruka is like literally was looking at Judy, like as he's kissing Shuri. Um, yeah, and it's like the spectacle that you know, it, at least Judy feels like is you know, perhaps designed for her to, uh, to witness, um, and to like be hurt by, um, cause that's the moment where jury is like, Oh, he knows everything. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I definitely think there is, uh, there's definitely something there. Um, the, the one question I'd pose to you on, on this subject is the revelation at the end of the episode um of like the in the shadow play of Ruka's motivation, which is stated to be like, oh, you know, he left the hospital even though like at, at some sort of self-sacrifice, he like left the hospital because he loved a girl on the fencing team, um, which I think we it probably basically has to be jury. Um, and he wanted the he wanted to gain this power uh, to like make miracles so he could give it to her and then like free her uh, and then it's kind of left at that yeah um, and it's like is does he want to like well I mean a like is this to, to what degree are we like you know, uh, treating this as, you know, the, the, uh, the master cipher to interpreting Ruka. Uh, but then, you know, secondarily, like, is he trying to give jury the power to do like, uh, is this, it, in other words, is this an inversion of the jury Shuri dynamic in that, like, is he trying to give Juri the power to make miracles so that she can be happy? 
and like realize this relationship with Shiori? Um, or is he trying to like control her for himself somehow? And in that, in that regard, like quote unquote, free her uh, from like, you know, being gay or something. Yeah. I, um, for, for me, it is that the, the tension between those um, I, and part of it is, I think it it is trying to complicate some of what's going on with jewelry because um, there's the more immediate like stated thing of like jewelry just wants um, she already to be happy, right? Wants to like free her, wants to to like save her in whatever way. Um, well, once she's you, like embroiled in in all of this, yeah, yeah, um, and. I think you could you could read a certain like there could be a version of, of Ruka that is like, oh, he is grabbing the locket and is going to smash it and stuff because he wants to like free her from this pain over pining over this girl who's never going to love her back. Yeah. Um and wants to free her from that. And so there there is that reading. But then the other reading that I think it is happening is this other one that you're you're alluding to of like so if we are to read shiori as repressed and expressing her like desires for jury in these very destructive controlling ways um that don't confront any sort of desire that like she might have um in this like romantic way, but instead is being like, well, I'm like obsessed with this girl. And when I find out that she is obsessed with me and like loves me, um, that gives me like a sense of power over her. Right. Um, and there, there are ways that you can read this as being like this very destructive, like repressed homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then if jury is trying to fight to free Shiori from that, then in some ways jury is, is fighting to, have like a Shiori who would be able to love her not in these destructive ways. Um, and then it becomes in some ways this like more selfish desire um, rather than this like more altruistic. I just want this person to be, be happy and free of this. Um, and so then if you get the inversion of that with Ruka, it becomes this, I want to free her from this like homosexual desire that she is having. Um, that is like causing her pain because it won't be reciprocated possibly so that she could love me. Um, and I, I think that this shows is self-aware enough to be able to bring that in as something that is complicating what's happening with jury without saying that, um, desiring that someone get over internalized homophobia is the same as like, um, what, Rook is kind of doing also when he like kisses jury, which is like the, this idea that straight men have that I, I have talked about um, of like basically this, like, you know, sexually assaulting conversion the lesbian fantasy. into yeah. Like conversion therapy, um, which is a like shitty thing that happens in the real world. Um, and I, I think is like, like the, the assault against jury that happens knowing of the full context of like her sexuality in particular, um, is a thing that I could, I 
think could be particularly triggering for for people because um this is an attitude that like straight men have around like queer women um not obviously all straight men <laughs> not to, to <laughs> you, say you that this is that. The, it's yeah. okay i i know i know, I know. <laughs> not you Connor. not you you're one of the good ones yeah <laughs> you, you don't have to qualify it <laughs> um but so like and i i don't think that the show is like fully making those things equivalent but i i do think it is trying to like further complicate like what fully are jury's intentions um and they may still be better and the show often is most sympathetic to her, I think, um, of like all of the duelists. Um, but it it is again, trying to complicate these things in ways that, um, you know, I don't know if you have additional thoughts here, but we can maybe get into like Utena and Anthe and Akio. Um, this is really the, the arc that is like, um, is complicating things the most, both like in their relationship. And then also with like, what is Utena, um, like seeking and desiring and all of this, like, what is Anthe doing? You know, all of that stuff is also getting complicated in ways that, um, I don't think the show, especially with Utena is being like, Oh, she's like a failure now. Right. Um, yeah, it, but it but it's Just, also showing her like losing her way far more than we have previously. Yeah. Um I don't have a whole lot to add. Um I I just I think that the um Yeah, all, all of these contradictions are present and like in a way that is, you know, I think it's it's important that there's not like a clean reading here, um, and and the the only thing I, I would add is like we see that in um, this kind of like I th- these two valences of like Ruka, which is the one of just like extreme aggression, like sexual assault extreme manipulation um trying to force and manipulate jury into doing these things um and then like what is presented towards the end of the episode uh kind of jarringly uh and strangely um where like the duel is over you know we saw how ruka reacts when he loses his first duel and Shiori's like injured and he's just like, Yeah, fuck you. Like Yeah. I don't you're, you're worthless. Like yeah. and like I just need a better like partner. And then how he reacts when Jury loses the duel, um, where he just basically is like uh oh like don't worry. Like like Jury is like extremely distraught and he's like, Don't worry, it will be okay. Um yeah. something to that effect. Um, and then like dies shortly thereafter, uh, and then we get this revelation of you know, the, the shadow play revelation that we're talking about, um, and like the the final scene, which is jury like uh, wrestling with this kind of like presumably this exact same question that we're posing, um, and jury like you know seeing her. And then, like, running out to go, like, walk with her. Um, mm-hmm. 
so it's like you know all of this stuff is swirling around and like very much an open um you know question here um yeah there's even the question of like what did she want with the power who would she save right yeah Um, yeah exactly and like you know again like who is Ruka and like, what was his motivation? Um, yeah. And like, is this actually, uh, you know, and, and maybe this it plays out in the final six, but um, this, the future that has been created now um, that we see at the very end where Shuri goes to run, you know, runs it to go be with Juri, um, is the future that has been created as the result of all of this, like, that opening for you know what what you mentioned um like shiori to like shiori injury to reconcile somehow you know yeah um not that that it obviously not that that would redeem uh anything that ruka has done um but just like again it's a very difficult uh and complicated uh uh character in like Dynamite. yeah and i think it's also like i i want to say in here too that the reveal being a shadow play i think is significant for for multiple reasons one being that like the shadow play is often a kind of like um not fully related commentary on something from the episode um often it's like not super important and that's why we don't talk about it in the way that we're talking about this one um but we'll sometimes relate to something that happened in the episode but be kind of its own little thing um, and so one, I think that is important that like that calls into question also the, the full accuracy of it. Um, and then I think also it being presented as kind of gossip being told between nurses. Um, and it, it being sort of the story is like also putting it into this framing of like, um, these stories get that get told and like become these like fables or fairy tales where of course the version that we hear in the hospital is like the most like, Oh, isn't it so romantic? He wanted to leave because he loved this girl who on the fencing team and wanted to save her and blah, blah, blah. Um, And what we saw is like far messier. And like, again, that version I don't think is like the full truth because you get the sexual assault and it like, it doesn't matter what his intentions are. That's still a terrible action that he does. Right. Um, and the way that he, he treats Shiori and the way that he is like using these things to try and manipulate, like even if it is for ultimately altruistic ends, there's still all of these means that are so terrible. Um, yeah. And, and so I think having it specifically figured as like the shadow play that's doing this like most altruistic, like idealized version of what it was his intentions, um, I think is meant to point towards like there. I think there's supposed to be some truth in it, but it is also intentionally. And we are supposed to be aware of um, this like very idealized version that is not also the full truth. Um, yeah. Which who knows could relate into, we then start getting the fable again. <laughs> um yeah um so uh utena uh and akio and anthe yeah the the one thing i want to also do just to transition us from um talking about the jury stuff is so i think it i think it comes up around um 
Utena being like, why is Shiori still like pining after Ruka? He seems like a jerk or whatever. Um, and Anthe says, perhaps it's one part of her true feelings. At times, people will say things that they never normally say or do things they never normally do. Um, and Utena says, do you do that too? And Anthe says, Mistress Utena, the truth is I, and then we get the, what is it? Never mind. Um, this is, this is the one that feels like the most pointed to me. Um, and again, it also being situated in this like jury stuff, I think it will, will be interesting to think about as we continue on with the series, but yeah, we can get into Utena, Anthe, and Akio now. Um, Okay, I'll I'll let you go first. Um, I don't actually know how to start on this. I don't know if you have a. I I know where to start on this. <laughs> now that I, now that I'm thinking about it, which is, so I know how this series ends, and so there's stuff here that is going to be difficult for me to like really talk about to to some extent. Um, so there's a certain amount to which, like, I want you to lead some of this because, like, you know, where this ends off, like, Akio is not, like, dealt with in the way that, like, you know, Professor Nomura or whatever. Um, yeah. He, he's, like, dealt with at the end of the Black Rose saga. Here, Akio is, like, very much still part of this story. Um and so this whole, like, what is happening between Utena, Anthony, and Akio is just, like, you know, again, without going into too much detail, like, that's what the last six episodes are really going to be about. Um, and we'll figure out where stuff goes. But so part of me is, like, I want to know what's your read on the the big thing here being Anthe. Um, You know, I, I set up at the front that, like, you know, this saga this arc does not really fully clearly like it hasn't finished exploring. Um, and it like does not feel complete in the exploration of like exactly what is Anthe's role. Um, because, you know, just to pull out the stuff that, that I, I knows here and that I can talk about and then maybe throw to you. Um, we, we have this tension of these scenes that we talked about of like, you know, especially towards the, the, the final two episodes. Um, but like Anthe seeming to be a conspirator, which has been hinted at throughout the series. We talked about mm-hmm. it in previous episodes of this podcast, but we get the like specific, like, Oh, here's the kiss in the car and Anthe in the background with the, you know, gleaming Gendo Akari glasses. Um, and also these these other instances where like Anthe is more explicitly being shown as like like the whole thing at the end being like Anthe told Utana to like deliver these roses, which implies this like and then went to like didn't want to look at the real stars and wanted to just go to the planetarium, um, which I think is also touching on like one we see Anthe doing these things that are like enabling and um you know going along with the, this like grooming of utena by her brother we also see the scenes around like the sexual relationship between akio and anthe where um you know the the first time that she like 
or that he calls her to him, she like kind of hesitates in a way that like we haven't really seen. Um, and the, the image of like the stars in her wrapped around, you know, after that, um, is kind of a, a frightening image as well. Um, the, the stuff around like Nanami's flashes of what she saw in their staticness in particular, um, in the way that like Anthea is so draped, um, and then especially the next episode having this like more obviously comatose, um, like just sitting there unmoving, staring Kanai who like Akio is feeding, um, yeah. apples too. Um, it, there's uncertainty and it is to some degree implied that like possibly, um, Anthony's not even fully conscious in that scene. Like she's like, so like draped over the, the sofa, um, and like prone in this way that like, you know, the show is, is, um, complicating the way that like at the beginning, Anthony seems so clearly just like, Oh, she's very passive. It's just doing whatever she said or whatever she's told. Um, and then it's sort of getting more complicated of like, well, she actually seems like she's having some agency. And then this is the one where it's like really pulling out that tension very intensely. Um, that tension. Um, and so, you know, that that's also happening. And then there's also the, like, especially the pillow talk scenes with um, Utena and, and Anthe, you know, there seems to be something genuine, although also to what degree could that be something that she's just like putting on to, you know, further, further enable further like the scheme. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it is a thing that is like one, it like somewhat calls that stuff into attention, but then especially this like repeated, like mistress Utana, the truth is I, and then like, doesn't say it. Um, I think it's like pushing at like, it still seems like there, if it, the first time that I watched this, I felt like there was still something genuine happening with Utena and Anthe, even as just like very, very fraught and, and, um, clearly like Akio is winning out. Um, but I think especially with those things of like Anthe wanting to say something and then not saying it, um, felt like it was the most pushing towards like, there's something, she's not just fully a like willing um, part uh, of like Akio's plans, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what your vibe like. How how do you feel about Anthe right now? Um, what's your read on her? What's your what's your um, what takes do you have that are, are different than that that I kind of put forward as just like I think this is all what's like immediately in the text that I can say. Um, I I think I agree with pretty much all of that um and like and, and, and i'll give you my reasons um so first of all like this is a thing that we've been tracking um you know as you alluded to um it, it's a dynamic we've been looking at already um so there was going into this arc there was already like the question was present um and, uh, but in terms of looking at like change or movement, um, in this relationship, which I think it can, 
especially in this case, is very telling. Like when when things change, it seems very significant. Um, so previously, um, in the Black Rose Saga, like towards the end of that saga, um, there were a couple of instances. I think at least one, maybe two, um, where there is this like. Um, Akio calling to Anthe and in those instant like at that time um, she like goes to him and is like oh yes brother and the way that it's framed is like you know like without hesitation right like it's like yeah. more like eager um, more just like uh you know, like, willing. Um, it, it it appears that way. You know, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not saying that that is necessarily the case, um, especially with what we're seeing now. Um, but at that time, it appears more willing. Um, here we have, like, um, some key scenes that start to, like really strongly indicate for me that they provide very strong evidence uh, of like what you're saying. Um, so uh, the first one is actually like not related to this at all um, or, or not explicitly like Anthony and Akio. It's the uh, dual sequence in 25 with uh, where like, so we, we kind of recapped it earlier, but um we have like uh, the the same like sequence that we've had hitherto, uh, where Utena pulls the sword out, or just like it gets the sir- sword. I can't remember how, um, and is dueling Sionji, and the sword is like she she loses the sword. It just suddenly disappears, um, and Utena is like you know unarmed, and Sionji is going after her, um, and this is playing out like the. You, we get a direct shot of Anthe um, as this is playing out. And there is a look on her face that's like that we've seen before um, where she's like completely unperturbed. Um, and like she, her eyes do have like this kind of glossy look, um, but she's just totally unperturbed. And I think there's already a kind of like, it's the, the same duality of, uh, or this same question that we've been dealing with, which is like, oh, okay, is she unperturbed because she's like expecting this um, and like doesn't care that Uten is in danger? Or is she unperturbed because she's like somehow, you know, like a- out of her mind or like, um, you know, stupefied or something? Um, and in this sequence, there's like, uh, this sequence changes that, right? Like, there's a sudden yeah. change where, where she's like, um, we get a close up of her, like, and her, like, the movement in her eyes as she's like, uh, breaking out of this, like, trance state. Um, and then, like, in this climactic moment, she breaks out of this trance state and then she steps in and, like, interferes in the duel for the first time. Um, and then they like you know re-inaugurate the like 
sword ritual, but now it's this transformed version of the sword ritual. And Utena, like, goes and wins, right? Um, and then, like, you know, um, I believe, at it, like, it's at the end of the same episode that, um, like, Akio calls to Anthe, and then Anthe, like, um, now I might be misremembering, so, you know, uh, but, but the point remains the same regardless, but I believe this is where, like, she shows some hesitation, um, initially, like, um, and then immediately in episode 26, like, um, I think it opens, or one of the first, like, scenes we get is another scene with Akio and Anthe, and, um, again, there's a, a shot, it's brief, but very conspicuous if we're, like, thinking about this problem, uh, where we get a shot of Anthe's hands, like, she's standing by Akio and, like, obviously anticipating him to, like, you know, try and initiate sex or, like, you know, do what he always does. And she's, like, twiddling her fingers, like, nervously. Um, And then uh, Akio is, like, calls her and, um, like, she she doesn't, like, reciprocate or whatever, not fast enough. And then he grabs her and pulls her down. Um, The teacup she's holding, like, breaks... Um, which again, like, you know, kind of a symbolic, uh, like accent to the violence of the scene. Um, and then Utena walks in, like, at this moment, um, and Akio plays it off, but like, we get a shot of Anthe, um, you know, with her eyes shielded, like, cleaning up the broken, um, pieces of the cup, um. Uh, and and then uh, also like I'm remembering now um, when Akio pulls her down like he's uh, she's like oh like the cup is broken um, and the way that line is delivered is like you know almost a um, like almost trance like uh, in the same way um, but it has the dint of like. I don't know how to put this, but um, someone who's going through something like terrible, just like um, disassociating, right? Yeah. Um, Where like this like horrible, like, you know, Akio is doing this thing to her and she's like, oh, like the cup is broken. Um, And and all of this is happening, like all as a whole sequence. Um, So... Uh, I think like that scene is uh, raises a major like uh, red flag <laughs> uh, immediately, um, and, and also provides a lot of evidence for like the you know there's a Anthea is not like necessarily a willing participant in this, um, and. I don't think it's easily countered by the reading that um, this is somehow like designed to manipulate Utena further um, because, you know, a lot of this transpires not in Utena's presence. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, and uh, I think the fact that it follows on the heels of this like shift uh 
uh, around like the trance stuff um where anthe is like able to break out of this trance thing in the prior episode um and then you know now that she's able to break out of this then suddenly like she's showing this resistance to like this stuff with akio um i think we connect the dots there and uh you know and then that like adding into the stuff that you're bringing out um which is um she the like a couple of like abortive attempts to presumably like talk to utena about it um and, and i think um it's I think there's a strong case to be made that, like, in those moments where she's like, oh, Utena, like, uh, you know, I, like, I'm going to say something, and then and then she doesn't. Uh, there's a strong case to be made that this is, like, about Akio, um, because then, like, the third time this is repeated, or the fourth time or whatever, um, it's Utena who's going to say something, and then yeah. she doesn't. And we know that it's about Akio in that instance. Yeah. Um, so there's this way that like Akio is this unspeakable like barrier, like he's this the unspeakable like barrier between them, um, and then we can extrapolate backwards and be like, oh yeah, like you know, just in the same way that Akio is the unspeakable thing for Utena, like he's also the unspeakable thing for Anthe. Yeah, um, and and somewhat related to this too because I, I think it's tying into stuff that we're talking about right now which is also that um sort of the the culmination of this arc is this um sex scene really between akio and utena um and throughout like the actual scene that we see um and also like what comes after um there's a certain amount to which like utena is expressing herself and seems to be thinking about what happened as something that she like participated in, like with, with some level of willingness, Mm -hmm. but it is important that the, the show also has the car driving with the stop, 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 stop. Um, You don't get Utana saying that, but I, I think the show is, is still saying like, even this in this context of we're not seeing Utena saying that we're not like seeing her saying no, um, because of all the like manipulative stuff around this. Like even if even if she believes that she's willingly partaking in this, like what's happening there is still a rape. Um, yeah, of I think like it's... this this predator who's like groomed groomed to this girl. Um, yeah, the the Utena stuff is the, it's very complicated in its own way. Um, yeah, but uh, sorry, continue. Um, I mean, and so some of this is like obviously like that's the end of episode thirty three. Basically, um, I mean, there's like the the car like conversation that we talked about and things. Um, we'll continue to like talk about where that goes. Um. With the next six episodes, but, um, yeah, I, I think, like, I, I want to make sure, because I, I kind of alluded to it when we did the synopsis and stuff, but I, I want to make sure that I, I think, 
the way that the stuff is being framed and talked about is a thing that is um, the the way that they are like the images that they are choosing to do for that scene are images that are telling you that what is happening is rape, even as like the dialogue is not necessarily telling you that like Utena's like thoughts and reactions are not necessarily telling you that. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to think about like, this is something that the shows, is it least suggesting um, in those moments? Right. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, because I, I yeah, I, I think it's just, I want to like make sure that that's fully grounded as like, if we are reading my reading of this arc is that it is, you know, I, I said this at the top, but like to be very clear that it, it is this older man, like grooming this young girl and ending in a rape. Um, even if like she herself, because of the way that she's been um, groomed in this relationship is at least at this point, not necessarily really thinking of it that way. Um, and I, I say this as someone who like <laughs> this year realized that I was raped when I was in high school by like my abusive girlfriend, um, that like, these are things that like take time sometimes to even understand. So I, I want to like talk about that specifically, um, in, in terms of like what, what's happening in that final episode, um, because I, I don't want it to be like, oh, there there's uncertainty around, like, what's really happening here. Like, uh, all of this is this, like, gross predatory um, sexual abuse of this girl. Um, and the uncertainty that I think it is showing, I don't think it is bringing it in to be like, oh, what's really Can happening here? It? Yeah, or whatever. Um Right. I don't think it's, I don't think it is bringing in any of the stuff to be like victim blaming towards, um, Anthe or Utena. Um, I believe yeah. that the series is dealing with the stuff in a, in a way that is saying like, no, like Akio is like truly the villain here who is doing these terrible things. And the, these girls are in this position where they, um, perhaps as we're, we're talking like, Anthe may be beginning to realize and like try to break out of this more. Um, but Utena is entering into it and like their inability to name what is happening to them. I, I don't think is, I think the show is aware that that is like part of the tragedy that's happening. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, I think that should be like, I think that should be the first, uh, like, analysis of, like, that. that's, like, the primary analysis of this situation. Like, that should be the first conversation. Um, because, like, it, it it's, def- it's unquestionable that Akio is the villain. Like, all the stuff that we've just gone through, like, not only, like, knowing all of his dynamics with these other characters... Um, his general like positioning as the villain um, throughout this arc, and I mean in the Black Rose Saga as well. Uh, yeah, and then also like his stated intentions around Utena <laughs> uh, that we see him like discussing. Um, 
it make it very clear that like he you know it's predatory yeah. um i i do think like the series is it is confronting like child sexuality and like well i'll, I'll just say like you know pre-adult sexuality and like pubescent sexuality in in a very in a very stark way um which is like one of the things that um is really difficult about the show yeah um i mean a lot of this stuff is like very difficult to um to you know to to watch uh much less like discuss um but the way the show like the the willingness to confront it and like really uh like work with it um i think is is really important um and the show has a lot of uh There is like a lot of richness in like what the show is doing uh around these themes. Um and like with that in mind, I like again, this is like a, a kind of a difficult direction to take this in light of everything that we've discussed. Um but like focusing in on Utena as one of the characters who is like, you know, we talked about how this arc is treating like uh, puberty and like coming into um, like awareness of your own sexuality uh, and like being able to actualize your sexuality, etc. Um, you know, obviously Utena is like tied into this as well. Um, and more so than like any other arc. Uh, much more so we get like Utena's own thoughts um, about her sexuality and like portrayals of her portrayals of her sexuality, um, you know, in, in various degrees. And like, it's, it's all, it's caught up in like this grooming, um, like as you point out. Um, But I also want to like, I want to create a space for like this is like this is inextricable from like the grooming um but I want to create a space for like there's a degree to which like I don't want to just be like okay Utena's sexuality like all of her sexual like feelings and experiences that she's conveying are all just, like, reducible to, like, what Akio wants from her, right? And what Akio is, like, doing to her. Like, she's experiencing, like, this attraction to him that is, like, inextricable from all of the grooming, but also, like, to some degree, like, like, her own 
like or organic like to her and not as a victim blaming thing but like in the way of like that that this is like, like this is how predatory behavior operates um that that it is it is taking desires that like belong to the person that that they're a thing that a lot of young people have are desires for older people um yeah there there are many kids who are attracted to their teachers for example um and those feelings are like legitimate and and are things that young adults like people who are you know going through puberty are are having um and that really the the like the onus and the blame is on the the adult for that like takes advantage of that that uses that right. to to then right. like initiate this um but like all of that stuff usually so so much of stuff that is around um you know grooming and, and these sorts of relationships and even into like more overt pedophilia stuff um part of how that stuff operates is is preying on the shame that like these you know pre-adults will have around like that they wanted it right um and so that's part of what it what is happening here and it so like that utena's like desires are are real um they're not wholly fabricated um there are definitely ways in which i think akio has um has played in in ways to develop them more um you know we we get the escalation of oh you're coming over and i'm i'm talking to you about constellations and things oh why don't you move in with us um yeah. this sort of oh like i'm going to put my hand around your shoulder like yeah yeah the, um, the steps that he's taking but, yeah and so like there are ways that he is like intentionally taking that those feelings and like um intentionally escalating them i think um i think it's important to to like note that and think about that um but it, yeah again it's not um it's not like wholly just this thing that he like it's not like he's like mind controlling her into right 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 like having feelings that just weren't there um and again yeah, this and- is, like what is portrayed here is like what actually happens it is not this like supernatural mind control and some of the stuff around um you know the the kanai stuff is is the part that like feels the most like weird and supernatural but even the the stuff around um anthe the like you know you're you're talking about this earlier like even if we read some of that as her being kind of like comatose is the kind of detachment that like long-term uh, victims of abuse will enter into when abuse is happening. Um, in order to survive, they have to like shut off yeah. so much of themselves. Um, and so I, I also don't think even with like Anthe that the, the show is necessarily um, saying that this is like some supernatural control that he has over her, at least at this point. Um, yeah. And, and I think that heightens the tragedy 
uh, of the whole thing because, well, I mean, not that it needs to be heightened any further, but like, there is a space that like I, I want to talk about Utena like her character as like, oh, it's significant for her character that she is like coming into like, you know, awareness of her own like sexuality, like physical sexuality, like having this desire for this older man, like, you know, and like, this is important, you know, like again, for her as a character, um, and like how we're understanding her and how like her character is progressing. Um, yeah, it's, it's so much more distinct than the stuff with Toga early on where yes. so much of that felt wrapped up into this like childish fairy tale of the prince. Right. Absolutely. Um, and not this like actual physical desire. Absolutely. And uh, I think the um, to bring that out even further, like, because the Akio thing is like the crisis that is presented by Akio is uh, like a recapitulation of the Toga crisis in a way. But again, in that same like the escalating way that this is like so much more dangerous and harmful now. Um, but like it, it's a similar crisis for like type of crisis for Utena where it's like Toga Toga is trying to trick her into thinking that he's the prince, right? And on that yeah. ground, like, she, you know, will, like, date him or whatever solely because she thinks that, like, you know, she's been tricked into thinking he's the prince. Um, yeah. But, like, with Akio, it's it, the conflict is, like, I know this guy isn't the prince, but, like, I feel this sexual desire anyway. Um, and, like, you know... The sexual desire is like you know the the operative, um, it, obviously like <laughs> with all the complications that we've talked about you know um, like floating in the air here, um, it, it's a sexual desire that's taking precedence over like oh I'm I'm you know interested in you because I think you're like the prince, it's like what's driving it is like her physical sexuality her physical desire. Um, even to like the you know even overruling like the prince thing because uh, she knows she's not that he's not the prince um so i think like there's all of this stuff happening with her character that is you know also important to like discuss um but then like you know when you put it in context uh then you get the larger picture of like yeah, it's the tragedy of like this girl like coming like coming into a realization of her sexuality and like it being, you know, swept up in like this predation um by this guy and yeah. like this grooming. Um and like you know, that she's not able to, like, you know, you can imagine an alternative that, uh, 
a, a healthy alternative that like she's now you know um hopefully she will like at the end of the series be able to to get to um but but there's a tragedy in there um yeah it, anyway that's what i'm trying to say um yeah i i think the other like main thing i have with this too is the way that um it's tying in with some of the stuff that, and and I, I also want to pull this out here towards the end because um, it came up, especially around stuff with, with Jewry. Um, but like throughout Utena has been figured as a, a naive character and that um, her naivety is often has been like part of her strength kind of, especially early on. Um, and it, it is really Jewry who like warns that, um, there's a danger there and warns it in this context of like, um, you can hurt others with your naivete because, because she seems like so unaware of what's happening with jury. She seems so mm-hmm. unaware of like a lot of the romance stuff that's happening between various people. And this, um, again, gets turned up and heightened with both her her lack of awareness of what's happening with Akio and Anthe, um, as well as like her naivete towards Akio in general, as he, um, you know, continues his advances, um, and so, you know, it, this is a thing that like I don't know if I have a, a final thought that I want to say now, um, but I I think that it's another significant part that's being brought out here especially if we're thinking about it further in terms of this like um childhood into puberty into adulthood um that that so much of like Utena's character has been related to this certain naivete about the world um and that it is something that it has early on gets figured often as a strength and you know, gets called more into question and, and here really becomes, um, crisis. yeah, part of the crisis. So, um, and again, not in a way to like blame her for being naive. Um, but rather that like that naive a day around these issues is also something that further enables Akio to, to take advantage of her. Um, yeah. Well, so, on, uh, yeah. <laughs> on that, on that note, uh, yeah. On that very sobering note, um, maybe we can wrap things up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe one of the most bummer episodes we've recorded of this podcast. And uh, we fucking, and we already did Evangelion. Yeah. Um, God, I, so I like the show. Lot. I like the show more than Evangelion. I don't know where you're at. I like the show more than Evangelion. Um, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll I'll reserve final judgment till till we're done with it. Um, but let's just say I, I like it a lot. Um, yeah, I'm really uh, really impressed with it. I like it a lot. Um, yeah, and I'll I'll give you a final judgment later on. Um, yeah, we can maybe do end of next episode a a little bit of a final judgment, and then we can watch the movie, and you can. Um, let me know what the, you think of the end of Utena. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it will be on equal footing, right? Because we'll have watched the yeah. whole series and also a film. Yeah. Um, and and we'll also, a... I will read the manga and talk about it when we talk about the film. 
Um, I've well, been reading gonna, it slowly, but this time I'm going to read the manga with you. But I'm going to do what I did for Eva, which is cram it. Yeah, <laughs> at the it's end. a much it's a much shorter manga than Eva was. So, um, but yeah, so I guess um, next time we're going to be talking about the final six episodes, episodes thirty four through thirty nine of Revolutionary Girl Utena, um, again, often referred to as the Apocalypse Saga. Um, if you have questions for us about Utena and you want to write them in now, uh, you can write into ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Um, most people seem to wait until after the final episode goes out to send in emails, but I just That's logical. want to remind people, you can send if you have a question now, you can send it in, and if we answer it, then we answer it, you know? Like in, a, in an episode <laughs> after you send it, that's fine. It doesn't, I'm fine with that. Um, and then we might still talk about it on the podcast, like on the question bucket, even if we answered it in the episodes, because, you know, Which is we cool still think like it's that. interesting and worth talking some more about. Um, Thank you to the Export Audio Network. Uh, you can go to exportaud.io, which takes you to the Patreon, um, and support the network. Um, I was about to do the the plea that I sometimes do on ornate stairwells, where I'm like, "Hey, like Autumn and Nora are moving soon. Um, you know, it'd be great to support them right now to like help with their move." Um, but this is not coming out until uh Christmas Eve when they will have already. I, ho- I hope they're not still <laughs> moving at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the the plan right now is uh like like mid to late November, I think. Um, okay. they, yeah, they're getting their keys early November, but, um, yeah. So unless they're, they're doing it with like a pat wheel, they'd probably yeah. be there by, <laughs> by uh, um, December or whatever. Yeah. But if, if you do go to exportodd.io and you support the network for at least a dollar, um, you will get episodes of my other podcast, ornate stairwells a week early. Um, but if you want to go listen to the free public feed for Ornate Stairwells that comes out a week later, um, that is exportodd.io slash Ornate Stairwells. Um, and it's a, it's a movie podcast. We talk about film aesthetics, the erotics of cinema. Um, you can follow the podcast at Ghost Divers Pod. You can follow me at Fox Mumnia. Where can people follow you? Uh, y'all can follow me at Rebelies, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Um, you can also follow me at Garfred Aloud to watch me read Garfield Aloud into a camera. Um, also, when I was going to this episode, I was like, oh, I should remember to talk about how we're doing independent people. And then while I was doing this bit, I remembered that this episode's coming out on Christmas Eve. Um, so we may have already recorded our independent people episode. I don't know if we have or not. Um, I don't know when we're going to schedule that for, but it's possible that we, we have already recorded it. Um, in which case you would be too late to send in emails, but you can still look forward to it. Um, I guess like in a, a week or so. When, yeah. Well, yeah. you can always, you know, we have 24 hour tech support on the, uh, export audio discord. So, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. You if, can, it, if you search for abnormal mapping discord, you'll find the, the discord that has the export audio channel. And if you go on that channel and you post, um, we're in there. It's cool. Yeah. We, um, we answer questions. 
yeah, it's pretty fun. I, um, it's like the only discord that I really regularly check. <laughs> it's the only place that I post on the internet. <laughs> That's true. I'm not joking. This is the only place that I post anywhere on the internet. Uh, yeah. If you want to see Connor ever say anything on the internet, <laughs> go to the abnormal mapping discord um and specifically just the export audio channel i think that's the the only channel that you post in yeah that's that's um, the only one it's the main channel i post in i rarely post in other ones um i i do sometimes but lately i just have not had the time to keep up with some of the other ones anyway um this is getting to be slightly rambly, but I guess, um, (laughs) happy, like Merry Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Um, go watch the 0080 war in the pocket. (laughs) Yeah. Great. (laughs) Um, Greatest greatest Christmas movie of all time. On sterols. I think it came out on the 21st. We're we're planning, uh, the episode on the 21st. If you are a Patreon subscriber or, um, if for the public feed, it'll be out next Tuesday when you're hearing this, uh, we are doing Tokyo Godfathers, which is one of my, it is like my favorite Yule movie. So, um, yeah, go listen to that. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, Do you have anything else to, to plug Connor? No, I'm, I'm good. Um, you next know. time people hear us will be, um, well, not next time that people hear me if they listen to stairwells, but next time people hear ghost divers, it will be 2022. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Playing to, uh, you know, playing to do a lot of squirting in 2022. <laughs> um, I was going to say already, planning I ordered to, a couple pallets. planning to, to launch a Cromartie high school, uh, manga read through podcast. So. I'm playing to squirt during our Cromartie High School <laughs> read along <laughs> podcast. Will you, um, will you squirt with me? Yeah. During the... Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> People aren't going to get this because they haven't listened to the bit that's going to be after the credits yet. Wait, you think people don't know about squirting? Bye, everyone. Are you going to say bye to the people? (laughs) I was going to let you handle that. All right. Bye, everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. See you in 2022.
that was a podcast. Should we do a down yeah. clap? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, let's do 251. Or 51. Okay. I was like, 251. Just skipping over the minute marker. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to stop recording. hit recording all right now recording um now recording i'm gonna quick close a few windows that i have open just because i feel like they are not (laughs) yeah i started doing that Uh, i don't even have that many open it's just yeah oh i'm i'm a like i'm a manic tabber (laughs) i just have like 30 tabs open at once yeah, Emily's always like, why is my computer running so slow? And I go over and I'm like, well, you do have 100 tabs open in Firefox. So um, you could maybe try closing like 80 of those and, and see if it runs a little faster. Yeah, your computer's <laughs> RAM is just like maxed out. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I figured out like, I, again, I'm sure like, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why people do this, but uh this is like the ultimate like ADD like habit of just being like, oh, if I like, I can't close this tab because if I do, I'll forget it. So like, I'm just coping by like having 10 million tabs that like, I'm probably never going to come back to this for another six months, but like, it's important. I don't want to forget it. So let me just like keep it open constantly. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, then you end up with like 30 tabs. I also have like sets of tabs where I've like, I've had multiple moments where I've just been like, okay, this has to stop. Like I'm destroying my computer speed. Like I'm just going to create like a bookmark folder and bookmark all these tabs. So then like I have them all saved, but I just like, I can go back to them whenever I want. So that's comforting. But then I also don't like keep them all open like all the time. Uh, so at this point I have like three bookmark folders that all have like 30 tabs in them. Cause I've done this multiple times. And then I still have like all of the like 30 tabs, <laughs> like my current 30, like open on my browser. Um, it's just this horrible cycle. Yeah. Um, do when I do a time dot is clap. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, my clock is 1.7 seconds behind. That's actually pretty significant. Yeah. Mine is only 0.084 seconds behind with a, an accuracy of plus or minus 0.012 seconds. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm way off. I'm 0.018. That is not a good standard deviation. Oh god, it's 0.026. Um, I don't even have like a, did, did I just lose you or no, I just turned off the Wi-Fi on my phone. 
Oh, okay. I'm just giving you're, my internet every little bit of juice it can get. You're just. Um, I thought maybe you were just lost in the time that is. Like you're just watching it. It just spaced out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just slamming refresh desperately. Um, no, I mean it's still 1.7, so I guess we just like roll with it at this point. Yeah. Well, I think it's still showing you. It's time dot is just not the the my computer clock is wrong. Yeah, your computer clock is different than what time dot is has. Okay, that's fine. Um, that's why we do time dot is because it will give us the same thing. Right. That actually makes a lot of sense. Um. Okay, let's do like thirty one. For some reason, you said 31, and I was like, that's really soon, and then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little soon, so I'll give you a pass on that yeah. one. You want to do um, uh, 49? Um, sure. I fucked up that clap, but that's fine. I did fine on the first one. <laughs> okay. I was All saying, right. I don't I don't need a second clap. I was just commenting on my, uh, my feeling of like, oh, that was, oh, no, wait. I have plenty of time to to clap. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. it was the kind of soon where if I didn't like have time dot is like right up and I wasn't like like if I was like holding my phone or something, you know, then mm-hmm. it would be too fast. But I wasn't. Yeah, you know, got to keep you on your toes. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, should we just get into the episode, or do you want to bullshit a little bit more? No, I'm I'm ready. Okay, we did start recording late, so. Um, you do have everything set up, right? Thank you for your, uh, for your concern. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I was just checking that. So audacity is recording. My microphone is blue snowball. Uh, it's in one it's in mono and my headset Did I lose is, you? uh, not that it really matters with respect to audacity, but, um, my headset is set correctly as well. Um, did you want to there you go. That's exactly what I was going to say. Here you are. You're, you're trying to give me shit about not being set up, and you don't even have Kyrick in here. I was literally waiting for you to go through the list and get to Craig and ask about it, so... Yeah. You're tr- you're trying to train me. Um, like, to, to follow the, you know, the correct <laughs> procedure. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. All right. Yeah. Um, I just, like, in my peripheral vision, I just caught this last couple lines in the synopsis, so thank you for that. Um, Wait, in right, which do you one? Want, in the one I'm about to do. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes. Um... <laughs> Do you want me to clap before we start? Um, if you have just been recording the entire time at Audacity and never closed it or like stopped it, we're fine. Um, okay, I did. Cool. I did a note on my end. Okay, um, that that is the case. My new, more efficient way of of doing ghost divers. Yeah, I tried to do labels last time, and they just like didn't. They just didn't. Yeah. Um. So it's I fine. If I do it on my end, we're we're good, and then um. 
because normally I'm, I'll be the one looking at it anyway. Um, and then, yeah, the big thing was that I was listening to the entire episode, um, like super sped up, but I was listening uh-huh. to it doing the editing, but I'm not cutting out a bunch of like gaps and ums and stuff because we just don't have as many anymore. Um, and also I was probably like overly judicious in the first place. Um, and so I just don't listen to it at all. I just take, I just do the, the like markers. I fix those spots where I know that we like took a, a bathroom break or whatever. Um, and, joke. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I export it and then I listen to it to do the, the episode stuff. And so mm. I only listen to it then. And then if there was something else that I missed, I will catch it in that, which I did like for, there was one thing on the question bucket that I ended up editing after the fact. Um, I don't even remember exactly what it was. I, I think it was somebody just like started coughing or like sneezed really loud or something. I think it was autumn. Yeah. Autumn was like started coughing after smoking some pot. And I was just like, yes. Oh, I should, I should edit that out. <laughs> yeah. I remember that part. Um, um, okay. But I mean, when I do stairwells, I don't even listen to it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's better to just, you know, go full, fully raw. Yeah. Although the thing with, um, with stairwells is that I remember it far more because we like literally just did it, but hopefully I'll get caught up on ghost divers and be able to do edits faster. Yeah. I mean, we are so, when you're perfect, you don't really have to edit that much is the thing. So <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about it. All right, um, back to synopses. All right, I'm back. Okay. Um, where the fuck did I put my phone? Oh, it just fell in my pocket. Um, sorry, I was slightly peckish so i gotta dried samosa and i'm eating that <laughs> no worries um we can we can wait until you until you're done eating yeah do you want to do a, a drink check uh actually i'm not drinking i'm drinking water tonight we don't have any beer i'm also not drinking any alcohol tonight um what you got? So, I've just been drinking water so far. Oh, okay. Well, that's like yeah. telepathic. Um, I would say like the first half of today was just a great day. And then the second half of today has kind of sucked. And so I just didn't really feel like having alcohol. Um, I prefer it when I'm like in a good mood, right? Yeah, um, that makes sense. I don't want to use it because I feel sad. <laughs> yeah, that's um, generally feels not like it's advisable. getting into bad territory. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, generally uh, not advisable. I think. Yeah, um, but so during the getting up, I went to the bathroom and then got a dried samosa and then also a Verner's, um, just just a ginger ale. Oh yeah, um, Verner's is great. Yeah. 
it's a very Michigander thing. Um, I mean, I know it exists other places, but like we have to like go to the jewel in Chicago to get it. Whereas it's just like everywhere in Michigan. Cause I, I think it originates from, um, well now it's bottled by the Dr. Pepper company in Texas, but I know it was well, like originally. Yeah. It's yeah. been consumed by fucking corporate overlords. I'm sure. Um, but, it is the Dr. Pepper company, which is my favorite soda. So, um, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, ever since that fateful day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm just remembering the time that you, you roasted me where I said something about it being like bad drugs that they were giving people. Um, I think in the, um, Oh, MS team episodes, and you just immediately fired back. Yeah, not good drugs like weed that makes you realize Dr. Pepper tastes good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I just felt I mean, very destroyed in the moment. <laughs> you know, it's coming from a place of love because as someone who has like... For whom weed has been like the pivot point of like... Oh, I understand this now. Um <laughs> For, like, many things, um, I I totally get it. Um, Yeah. One of the first, like, kind of, we're going on a tangent now, but. uh, Ghost Dive, baby. Yeah, hell yeah. One of the first times I smoked, like, probably, like, I don't know, times six or seven, I was, uh, like, I was staying at my dad's house which is a, a very rare occurrence um, in Atlanta. I was like visiting him for like one night and uh, my friend uh, came over and we went like driving around the neighborhood and smoked weed and all that. And uh, then we were like playing um, Baldur's Gate, which is like the, we were playing the uh, PS2 Baldur's Gate, which <laughs> In the moment, I thought it was amazing, but apparently, like, people don't like it that much. Um, yeah. And we had gotten snacks, and I just remember, like, I was eating chocolate, and I was like, this is kind of gross, but I was like, okay, this is such an amazing flavor. Like, I literally want to coat, like, <laughs> every, like, square, like, millimeter of my mouth with chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> So I just got like a bunch, like several chocolates and just like chewed them up and then just like pushed it to all, like all sides of my mouth, like, you know, all over like, like my teeth. And like, it was literally like the entire, like the entire interior of my mouth was just like coated with chocolate all at once. And I was just like, this is the like most intense experience I've ever had. <laughs> I'm gonna have to put a like content warning for this episode for post episode discussion. Uh, chocolate based body horror. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was pretty ridiculous. But um, so you know when you talk about like oh you drink Dr Pepper and like you experience that flavor differently. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I'm I know I know how that goes. Yeah, my brain switched from like. Oh, this isn't just a a weird bad cola. It's actually good. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've had that uh, with with a lot of uh, a lot of things. So that roast um, came from a place of love. It's a point yeah. that reminded me. Um. But anyway, the the other thing about Verner's is that um, it's like a Michigan cure all. Like if you have any sort of like normal illness, you know, like the kind where you go to the doctor and they're just like drink liquids and don't go to work or like don't go to school and like get lots of rest. Um, you just drink copious amounts of Verner's. That's just how it works. Um, because the bubbles uh, makes your sore throat feel good if you have a sore mm-hmm. throat. And ginger is good for you if you're sick, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's a thing that I'll sometimes, like, I just got it tonight because um, I've just been talking a lot today. Um, and so I figured that, like, the ginger and the bubbles might be nice in my throat um, mm-hmm. from, like, talking a bunch. But it's generally a thing that I associate with, like, having a cold. That makes um, sense. Yeah, my mom always used to give me ginger ale. When, uh, whenever I get sick, especially when I had like strep throat or some sort of throat ailment, yeah, um, I would just eat, um, oh, fuck, what are those crackers called? Um, Ritz crackers. Yeah. Uh, and drink ginger ale. Um, um the other so, big Michigan thing I feel like is, uh, is this thing yeah, called backs. juice treat? No, Juice Street. Um, and it's um, half orange juice and then half, like, so um, Emily's family would normally do squirt. My family would normally do um, Sprite. Um, but, like, you know, Sierra Mist, 7-Up, like, those sorts of lemon-limey sodas. And then also, mm-hmm. like, squirt. Um, any of those kind of works, but it's just, like, a half... Um, soda half juice mix. Um, yeah, yeah you, it's not, you just drink that difficult. when you're sick. It's not difficult to see why why Squirt did not win that that battle of the uh, various lemon lime soda brands. <laughs> well, I think also Squirt is um, grapefruit flavor. I believe. Oh, I could be wrong. Okay. Yeah. Um. um so that was that market was already cornered by um, Fresca. I guess Squirt is just a citrus flavored carbonated soft drink. I definitely associate it as like being more grapefruity. <clears throat> I but, honestly, I actually, I've never, I've never had it. So, uh, oh, I was always, I was always just too intimidated. <laughs> so I never. Uh, uh, you're not you're not into squirters, which is what we people I mean, who drink I, squirt call each other. <laughs> I mean, I, I may I may very well be, but uh, <laughs> I've never I've never had the soda uh, yet, so I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, you you have yet to try squirting, which is what we call drinking. Squirting. <laughs> uh yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't, but you know. Um, you know, I, like I said, you know, um, 
I may very well I may very well be into uh, into squirting, but uh, since I've never had the soda, uh, I couldn't comment on that. I looked up you know? I looked up squirt on on uh, Wikipedia and learned that um, so like my Verner scan says Dr Pepper slash Seven Up Inc. Um, and I'm like, hell yeah, I love Dr. Pepper. And Squirt's also apparently Dr. Pepper. Um, but what I learned from this Wikipedia article is that the the main, like, the the top-level company is Keurig Dr. Pepper. And so apparently Keurig bought Dr. Pepper Snapple, also called Dr. Pepper 7-Up. And so now, now it's owned by the people who make the really, really bad <laughs> like you make bad coffee that's only marginally easier to do than just putting some coffee grounds in a coffee machine right, um, and creates tremendously but, but creates waste. yeah tremendous amounts of waste um now owns dr pepper which apparently also makes my other favorite sodas verner's and squirt wow so, that's rough living yeah. in capitalist dystopia here um can you can you do me a favor real quick? Sure. Uh, if you type in just squirt to Google, what re- what number like result is squirt soda for you? Um, let's see, number four. Okay. Do yeah. do we want to go? What number is it for you? It's it's five. Okay, so. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. Maybe I am less into it than you. Let let's let's go down the list. You give like let's go back and forth where you give me your number one. I'll do the number one back and forth until we get to squirt soda. What's your number one Google result? Let's talk about squirting from the Clue app. HelloClue.com. Okay, that's yeah. also my first result. What's your second one? Squirt.org. <laughs> Find hot local gay and bi men and search for the best cruising spots on squirt.org. Yes. .org. Okay, that, that's also my number two. What's okay. your number three? Uh, from bbc.co.uk, female ejaculation, every question you've ever had answered. So that's my number five. Okay. Yeah. My number so... three is how to squirt during sex according to a, ne- a neuroscientist from glamour.com. That's that's four for me. Okay. So BBC and, is three, and then Glamour.com is four. Yeah. And then Squirt and then, Soda is five. Yeah, whereas it, for me it's four. So Google knows that I'm slightly more interested in Squirt Soda than you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm noticing, too, Squirt Soda, apparently their web page <laughs> was last updated on January 10th, 2014. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> you know... They're they're having a rough time over there. <laughs> um, God, just fucked their SEO right up. Um, yeah, they, yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, it. Their their co- their marketing pitch isn't bad though. You know, Squirt has been refreshing thirsty Americans since 1938. <laughs> well, that's just true. Um, yeah. Um, Check out all the tasty squirt variations below, <laughs> of, of which there are three, um, which does <laughs> make us slightly 
awkward whether you, website layout. <laughs> whether you're serving squirt poolside or enjoying a yummy squirt mixer, the citrus flavored favorite is a guaranteed good time. Check out yeah. all the tasty squirt variations below. Th- those are the two poolside and yeah. squirt mixer. No, the two is oh yeah, so it is squirt grapefruit soda and then squirt ruby red citrus berry soda. I knew that they said grapefruit somewhere. Uh, um, there there are more jokes that could be made, but I think like I think this is God, a good place. This to is stop. such a basic ass website. I know it's isn't the layout super awkward when you just have three products and there's space for like like twelve. Yeah. Oh, I guess there's also Squirt Zero Sugar Grapefruit Soda, but I don't have a picture of that one. Oh, I have a picture. It It's the exact same, except it's just... Oh, no, it's it's white. It's, it's white squirt. Yeah. So you have the yellow, <laughs> red, and then white. The labels, I mean. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I don't even have to do a content warning for squirting. <laughs> I mean, then yeah, well, then all the then all the squirters will know they listen to a podcast. I'm sure they're just like yeah. I'm sure there's probably a, a scarcity of you know good squirt content on the <laughs> podcast realm. Yeah. Um. So maybe we'll get some new fans. People are always talking about Sierra Mist or, um. You know. Fresca. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I'm looking for careers at Squirt. He's <laughs> still on squirtsoda.com? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. All right. Now I'm off of it. I just just keep that tab open. Wait, I want a quick read. Um, oh, this is too long. I was going to read the accessibility statement, but it is really long. Oh, yeah. That and it just goes to the Keurig Dr. Pepper terms of use, um, uh, which yeah, feels that. very different than accessibility statement to me. Yeah, I mean... Like, I wanted to know how accessible is Squirt to me. Well, there's like four other articles ahead of it in Google's results that address that subject, so... um. What's the privacy yeah. policy for squirting? Um, it's another long question. thing that goes to Keurig. That's a good question. Oh yeah, let's um, play squirt. Are you, oh yeah, let's play. <laughs> what? Oh, it's a, it's a oh it's a charity. Yeah, they're. Um, it's it's a squirt for charity type of thing. I clicked on contact us and it took me to the Keurig Dr. Pepper. I don't want to contact Keurig Dr. Pepper. I want to contact Squirt. Yeah, you know, the more we look at this, the more I'm like, I'm just filled with sadness for like the tragic neglect of what could be an amazing brand. Yeah. Like this is a brand that like by all means like should be like resurgent right now you know what i mean like this is a 2020s brand and 
like th- this is the time for squirt you know um but it's just being completely ne- neglected by our corporate overlords at dr pepper snapple group which i guess is a subsidiary of keurig which is a subsidiary of disney that last part isn't true Yeah. All I'm saying is this brand should be like this brand has potential. Um anyway. Apparently between ten to fifty women uh depending on how the question is asked, squirt. Wow. So So it's really popular amongst women. Yeah. Like like more um, than like you mean but, like ten to fifteen percent? 10 to 50. 10 to 50%. So, is, so that, potentially is that only in Michigan? Half, so potentially all of half, like half of all women um, drink squirt. No, if but you, is that If you word it in a way, it? so it's specifically around volume that determines the, the difference in the, the percentage here. Okay. So, so if you talk about like, do you just have a little squirt sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe just like, like one of those short little juice glasses and you just have like a little bit of squirt and then like some, some orange juice, then 50%. But if you're like, are you juice treating every day? That's like 10%. Yeah. Are you drink? Are you like, yeah. Are you having like significant volumes of squirt? You know? Yeah. Okay. 10%. That's high though. Um, you know? Yeah. But so if if you want to get into squirting, it says one, go it alone. Um, just squirt solo. You you might feel a little less shamed about it. Um there are I'm not gonna read the rest of these like, because it's gonna be way harder to make it into a jokey thing about drinking a soda. Other than set the scene, it does say light a few candles, arrange some pretty flowers in a vase, scent the air with essential oils, whatever floats your boat. Create a space that is alluring. Um. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I mean, great advice for drinking any kind of soda. If you're gonna drink a Dr Pepper, um, I would definitely recommend you know lighting up some things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, add some essential oils in there. I'm pretty sure like Dr Pepper probably contains essential oils, so yeah, um, that will help you. But yeah, I mean, I get that part about. Go, you know, being alone when you do it because there are a lot of people who, you know, there's just might really, make crude like, sexual jokes about the soda that you're drinking. Well, there's just yeah, there's a lot of people who are just really like, you know, close-minded and conservative when mm-hmm. it comes to like that. You know, yeah, what and, soda you're drinking? Yeah, and they see a new type of soda and they're just like, ugh, like afraid of it. So then they, you know. Because they're afraid, then they just give you a ton of shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I Yeah, I, I get that. Um, yeah. All right, well, you know, anyone who wants to learn more can go to squirt.org. <laughs> um, sh- shall we talk about Anthony Nutena and Akio? <laughs> yeah. Following this uh, brief interlude, um, <laughs> let's return to Otena, 